This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy Friday to you. You made it. Another week. Congratulations. You know, you didn't think you were going to make it around Tuesday. Now look at you. Nothing but the weekend straight ahead. Of course, you've got to get through today. Give it your best. Continue doing your job. Today, by the way, men's grooming day. A day you're not going to want to miss. In fact, if I... I, Did you see what Terry's wearing? Yes, I think he remembered it was men's grooming day. I can't believe it. I think it's the first time I've ever seen Terry in a shirt with sleeves on it. That wasn't a polo shirt or a golf shirt. Mm -hmm. He looks great. Apparently, he's not golfing today. He's probably in there rolling his eyes right now. Yeah, he is. I bet he's going to wear a tie. I bet he's got something big going on. He's got a big surprise he's going to pull out. I think it's his doctor's appointment. Speaking of big surprises. What? I'm going to announce a big surprise on my show. What? You? I'm not going to tell you. Are you expecting? No. Oh. It has to do with a new show. Okay. On Amazon Prime that I may or may not have something to do with. Wow, you may or may not have something to do with. Yeah, so I could just be flat out lying. So it could just be a show on Amazon Prime that you have nothing to do with. That maybe I'll watch. Holy cow. But I will watch it, and I maybe I do have something so to do with So that'll be it. in three, two hours from now. Mm-hmm. Wow. Screen Cleaning with Jeffrey Liam Simpson. And uh, look at Terry, all dolled up with nowhere to go <laughs> on grooming day. Terry, do you want to explain why you're wearing a shirt with sleeves? I have a uh, thing to do at a place later. <laughs> oh, apparently a funeral. I know where he's going. He's in the family. You know where he's going? Mm-hmm. You, may or may, you. Not, you may or may not know. I'm not going to tell you that either. Is that going to be on your show? You're going to announce where Terry's going? No, no, no. We'll let the secret die. It sure would drive ratings, so think about it. <laughs> you look great. Thanks. I appreciate you, it. Are you going to wear a tie? Yeah, it's in my bag. What color is the tie? Just to check, make sure it looks good. Kind of a red blue yes, sort of thing. Of Notice he is. didn't wear the tie for you. No, he didn't. I wear the tie for him. When I'm going somewhere, <laughs> I wear the tie in here. I do that so I don't lose it. Well, he wants it at the ready in case he needs to strangle you later. Oh, Ooh, yeah, yeah. Sounds violent. Self protection. <laughs> sounds violent. We got a great show uh, today. We're going to be talking about um, why we need to understand Chinese philosophy, right? I mean, we understand European kind of Western philosophy, but if, we, if we're going to actually be negotiating with the Chinese, if we're going to be partnering with them, if we want to have a, a real effective trade policy, maybe we need to understand how they think. Or, you know, I mean, we always hear from President Trump that he knows everything. Does he know Chinese philosophy? Maybe, maybe you could ask how effective uh, trying to engage the government of China on Twitter. Yeah. Twitter may not be... Maybe shame them on Twitter into helping with North Korea. How effective of an approach that would be. By the way, and that's a great... Do you think that um, people that would understand the philosophers from Asia, a Confucius, a Buddha, Lao Tzu, those kind of... Do you think that they... Do you think that that would help in handling the North Korean crisis? Yes. I would think so, too. You would know where people are coming from. Yeah. If they're basing their thoughts on these sort of frameworks. But, but Westerners, we tend to think that Chinese philosophy comes from a fortune cookie. I've got one right there's here. there's more to it than – oh, boy, you do? Yeah. There we go. How come you – Confucius did, says yeah. 
or Panda Express, don't look back in anger. Mm, great. See, it's a great o- example. Oasis said that too. So maybe that's an example. <laughs> like, so that was Confucius. Oasis, who's that? It's a band. Okay. There's a song they have. Okay. Aren't, isn't that the one with the two brothers that don't get along? Yeah, the Gallagher brothers. Okay. But, so they obviously look back in anger. Absolutely. Oh, so they're, the, they're the duo that smashes watermelons at their concerts. No, that's Gallagher. That's, oh, okay. that's like the Gallagher. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be talking with an expert on Chinese philosophy and, on, and why and what we can learn from that. And by the way, not even just Chinese philosophy. I mean, there's philosophers from every culture. There's going to be African philosophers. Do we need to learn about that? Right. Probably. How about Native American philosophers or ph- and philosophy? We probably could actually take a nice dose of a lot of philosophy right now. Anything to help us get through the chaos that's going on. President Trump continues to, you know, take a beating. Wrong. And in fact, uh, Senator Corker, a Republican from who was Tennessee. from Tennessee, who was very pro, not pro Trump, I mean pro Trump. He's golfed with Trump in the last six months. Wow. See, that's that's one of the justification or one of the qualifications, I guess you could say, of how Trump he is by the news networks is he golfs with him. <laughs> how he has been trumped. Um, but he but Corker comes out basically questioning maybe the competency of President Trump that he's and not in almost not in like a not like a negative way, but like he's got to do something. Mm-hmm. You got you you got to show you're competent. You've yet to be able to show you know how to do what you're supposed to do here. And so now now GOP members more and more are starting to voice their concerns about the president. This hit me the other day. There's a scene in the Spider-Man Homecoming movie. Mm-hmm. Okay. Stick with me. Yeah, here. I will. We'll take you down a road. Mm-hmm. There's a point where the character playing Peter Parker is yeah. talking to a thief. Yeah. And the guy looks at him and Parker is trying to be a hero and he looks at him and the thief says, you need to do this part of your job better. Hmm. Being a hero, because Peter Parker's like breaking stuff. And oh, so the thief is helping hurt. him be a better hero. Yeah, so the thief tells Spider-Man, you need to do yeah. your job better. Nothing wrong with that. And that's kind of what Corker was telling yeah. Trump. You need to do your job better. Oh, is that Danny Glover when yeah. he's attached to the car? He's well, not telling yeah. him he's he's an idiot. He's saying, look, you're our president. You need to you need to grow and be more competent at this. The America needs you to be better at this, which honestly – is good because in a way it's not by it's it's now it's it's kind of bipartisan now. Right. Democrats would always hate him, but these are now GOP members. And by the way, apparently half of the Senate Judiciary Committee have already like had a little argument with Donald. But Donald needs the Senate, the right. GOP members of the Judiciary Committee. Wrong. Because I mean, half of the GOP members on the Judiciary Committee. Because if there, if this comes down with Mueller to any vote in the Senate about possible impeachment or anything like that, he needs friends, and he's having a hard time finding any. You're wrong. So we'll get to we'll get to some of that fun, and maybe by the way, a little Chinese philosophy wouldn't hurt. Maybe uh, maybe the president needs to look back, as Confucius teaches us. What is it? Look back. Don't a, look back. Don't at look anger. back at anger. I think that was Panda Express's. Oh. Fortune cookie. It really wasn't it's Confucius. Confucius. It's Panda. Oh, I thought you were actually really quoting Confucius. Mm, no. Just Panda. Oh, yeah. Panda. As, as the great uh, so, philosopher yeah. Panda Express. There you go. There you go. Once said. Just don't want to get us in don't trouble. Look back by, in anger. Uh, you know, saying something's a quote that it wasn't. I like his stuff, by yeah. the way, Panda. He's got good stuff. Uh, have you read Confucius, though? You need to read a little bit more of that. 
Less MSG in Confucius. That's hey, true. by the way, do you want to know a little truth that I learned? A little, a little doctrine truth, a ooh, little gospel ooh. truth. Oh, okay. Did you know that, like Confucius, uh, Buddha, hmm. um, Isaiah, in the Bible, Jeremiah, Lehi, they're all contemporaries. They were all on the earth within two hundred years of each other. I believe. Yeah, that's cool. Hmm. Which was a major moment of enlightenment on this earth globally. From Confucius to Buddha to Lehi to Jeremiah to Isaiah, a lot of light coming on the earth. Maybe hmm. that's why he's being quoted so much in the Book of Mormon by Nephi. Who? Jeremiah? Isaiah? Yes. I thought you were Sorry. thinking Confucius. Yeah. I don't remember I'd, Confucius being well, that in the was, Book of Mormon. That was part of the Lost Pages. Oh, yeah, that's right. Hey, we got a great show. Uh, we're going to get to um, also some empty news as well and continue the importance of Men's Grooming Day. And uh, we will. We probably ought to take a picture of Terry. No, please. This don't. is the first time I've seen <laughs> sleeves on your arm. I didn't I know you sleeves. could put sleeves on your arm. Sle- I hate sleeves. They look great. Yeah. And you ironed it nice. Yeah, I, I attempted up. things, but then yeah. you sit in a car and you know. He yeah. hates them because they always tear off when he puts the shirt on. Well, he, yeah, because he's ripped. I know. The guy's ripped. Yeah. Okay, we'll get to all that fun, but first to the headlines with the ripped Terry South. 21st Century Fox CEO James Murdoch wrote in a memo Thursday that President Trump's reaction to the violence at a white supremacist rally in Charlottesville last week weekend should concern all of us as Americans and free people and shared he and his wife Catherine will donate a million dollars to the Anti-Defamation League. Murdoch, whose father is the media mogul Rupert Murdoch, uh, said he doesn't usually offer running commentary on current affairs, but was so distressed by the acts of brutal terrorism and violence perpetrated by a racist mob that he felt the need to comment. He goes, I can't even believe I have to write this. Standing up to Nazis is essential. There are no good Nazis or Klansmen or terrorists. Democrats and Republicans and others must all agree on this, and it compromises nothing for them to do so. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's a, it's... This is the guy that's currently running Fox News. Which is why everyone goes, wah! Rupert Jr. Yeah. Yeah. And Rupert and uh, Trump apparently talk weekly. Really? Yeah. Like, they've been talking about who should be your communications director. Rupert had some ideas. Oh, okay. Good. So Rupert's got his hand on it. So we'll see how that works. At a time when the Trump administration argues that creating manufacturing jobs is a critical national goal, many factory workers are making a surprise decision. They're quitting. Ooh. The Washington Post reports government data showing workers in the sector are giving up their jobs at the fastest pace in a decade. That's a powerful sign. Economists say that workers think they can find work elsewhere. Since Trump declared that his candidacy, more factory workers have left their jobs than have been laid off or fired. In June, 194,000 factory workers quit their job while 29,000 retired and 101,000 were dismissed. Part of this confidence stems from the nation's 4.3% unemployment rate, a 16-year low, but workers said they also fear robots zapping jobs in the future, while many workers have tucked away savings from union champion raises and retirement benefits. The increase of people departing reflects a healthy adjustment in an industry that is likely to shrink as technology advances. Wow, so people, they're feeling comfortable enough to get to, to reach out for another job. That's great. See? Donald Trump. Is that what it is? I don't know. You don't sure. know? Sure. I mean, yeah. He'll claim it. Every president claims it. Oh, they all do. Why wouldn't you? It's laughable how every single one claims it's positive and then runs from the negative. Yeah. Yeah, I get you. Oh, well. Traffic is already a headache in central Oregon as thousands of people arrive for Monday's total solar eclipse. Traffic was backed up early Thursday on Highway 26 near uh, uh, Prineville, Oregon, the the last town before the turnoff 
for an eclipse-themed festival that is expected to attract 30,000 people in a remote area with narrow one-lane roads. A handful of gas stations in Bend and Prineville also ran out of fuel on Wednesday before getting restocked. The scene echoed one on Wednesday night when eclipse traffic first began to swell. Traffic backed up for 12 miles on the same stretch of road, doubling the drive time between the towns of Redmond and Preenville. An estimated 8,000 cars passed through those towns wow. on Wednesday evening. About 1 million people are expected to visit Oregon in the coming days and up to 200,000 to central Oregon. This is happening in Wyoming and Colorado yeah. and all across the nation. Where what's, you, what's our big piece of advice? Stay home. Don't watch. stare. Oh, yeah. Don't, don't also, stare at the eclipse. Don't stare at the eclipse. Don't travel. Don't uh, use three days of vacation and then sleep in that day. Oh, what and if miss you, it. What if you slept through it? That would be the worst. That really would, especially if you traveled there. Boy, I didn't realize it would be that this big of a deal. Well, it's more the fact that people, if it was in a big city, it wouldn't be a big deal because they have the infrastructure, the roads right, to right. handle that kind of traffic. But all these people are heading down these little one-lane roads, or two-lane roads, obviously. But. Yeah. One car breaks down, we're oh. in trouble. One accident. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, in Utah, they've they've even placed a life flight helicopter They've kind of staged it uh, closer to where all these people are going to be heading. So crazy. Fun stuff. Mm. And uh, finally, we've talked in the past, Matt, about fatbergs. I love a good fatberg. Fatbergs are uh, a problem in many countries. It's a congealed uh, mass mass of fat, Mm. usually usually in the sewage pipes in like London because everyone would – you know, flush their fat, pour their fat, throw their junk down. It's also around the world. It's everywhere now. Everywhere. It says a town called Whitney in England, west of London, known as a Fatberg hotspot <laughs> with uh, cooking fat and wet wipes causing major blockages in the town's sewer every two weeks or so. Because they pour their cooking fat and then pe- drop their wet wipes in and there. You know and the ones that say not flushable? Yeah, don't yeah, flush People those. are just tossing those mm-hmm. in. They have flushable ones, people. Just yeah. read the packaging. Makes Come on. Sense. The local water companies launched a campaign in the town to raise awareness of the issue among business owners and residents. Engineers have had to clear at least three major blockages from the town's sewers every two weeks. In the past three years, 17 properties in Whitney's have flooded with sewage as a result of blockages blockages caused by fatbergs formed when leftover cooking oil and fat wet wipes can, and congeal into a solid mass and then Ugh. they have the photos of the guys coming out of the sewer holding these massive like with it with really big eyes looking at the camera like help so they're not just a problem in london this summer northern ireland water uh, Excavate, excavated a couple hundred tons of grease and debris from Fatbergs underneath a row of fast food restaurants in Belfast. Oh, boy. In New York City, grease causes 71% of sewer backups, according to the city's 2016 State of the Sewers report, which is a thing. Apparently. By the way, in fact, I saw, I saw Jeff reading that yesterday. The city spent $18 million over five years fighting fat, Fatbergs. That's in New York. Eight. Eighteen million. There's stats in Indiana. They're having problems with it. It's just. And do we not just have a rule that you don't flush oil? That would be the. It just seems like the easiest solution. Now here, here's my. And then because then you could just go right to the stores, right? The shops that are flushing the oil. I mean, right here in in Belfast, it's under a row of restaurants. They know who's doing it. So just tax them all. Tax them. Here's the question. What? Found an article. Mm -hmm. It's a National Geographic talking about fatbergs. Okay. Their problem across the globe. There is a man in Ireland at a university who studies fatbergs. Why? Would Mm. you like to talk to him? No. What? I think he'd smell strange. You could talk to him on the phone. He would be on the phone. Oh, he wouldn't be in here. In the snow in studio from Ireland. Yeah. 
I think that would be fun. So we have an academic. A, a fat Berg PhD. This isn't some guy with a YouTube this channel. This isn't some just <laughs> wannabe fat Berg. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that would be fascinating. Okay, I'll see if we can set it up. Talk to him the first segment, and then the second segment, speak to the CEO of the fast food chain, Fat Burger. Ooh. And see, to ask him why he's ruining this well, world. Well, no, find out if what Fat Burger does with their oil, because they probably just they had, probably have to pay money to have somebody cart away their oil. I'm guessing, they probably don't flush it. I'm guessing the more news comes out about Fat Burger, the less business Fat Burger is doing. It's a good point. It's a really good point. I I did not know fat, but fat, it sounds like fatbergs are a bigger deal than we know about. Well, it depends because it sounds like they're taking over the UK. Yeah, and lots it, of video, lots of photographs. It's really gross. I mean, did you know that on a fatberg, only ten percent of the fat is above the waterline. <laughs> Ninety percent of the fat right. is below the waterline. Right. There's some motivational business poster somewhere. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> I always thought they meant like an iceberg, but well, eventually, it, we're well. If global warming continues, the only bergs we'll have will be fat bergs. Terry, what, what would you rather have coming out of those pipes, fat or weaponized hallucinogens, Ooh. a la Batman Begins? Oh, here we oh, go. All right. You're right. Here you're go. right. Mm. Here we go. See, it's always Fridays that he gets all movie crazy. It's true, though. This is a this is a, a question. I'll have to think about it. Okay. Weaponized hallucinogens. Do you, Versus a fatberg. I'm not sure. <laughs> Do you find it ironic that the fatbergs are increasing at the same time that we're about to have an eclipse, which could be signaling oh. the millennium or the, yeah, the end of all life on all, Earth? All things have to do with all things. That's how this works. This sounds like the great uh, a great premise for a movie. These uh, masses of fat forming together to create this solid mass of a monster. Fat mass. Who then wreaks havoc upon the very people who put him down there in the first place. Ooh, one by one, he starts picking off uh, establishments that flush a lot of oil. Fat burger. Uh-huh. And, uh, that's probably not true, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Boy, that's scary. To me, that's scary. That's scarier than like a zombie apocalypse. Would you rather be chased by a zombie, a human, or a big fatberg that smells like, you know, bacon? Hmm, that's what I'll have to think about too. If you're gonna go down, you want you might want to go down smelling like bacon. So, if we've learned anything today, folks, we've learned that you need to groom because it's men's grooming day. Also, we've learned that you need to. <laughs> <laughs> you you really need to make sure you pay attention to um, what you flush. Was that a genuine laugh, or were you just laughing? Through I started a cough? I started laughing, and then I started coughing, and then I, <laughs> the cough made me laugh again. Um, so don't flush wipes, and don't flush grease, or you will pay. Ugh, highly volatile. You will not want to go near it. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, see and be the good in the world. Up next, we're going to be talking about uh, Chinese philosophy and the importance of understanding our friends in the country and in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. With the ongoing conflict with North Korea, tensions rising in the South China Seas, along with 
uh, China's growing influence in the world economy, the United States would stand to benefit from a better understanding of how the Chinese people think and how they look at the world. And yet very few universities in the United States teach traditional Chinese philosophies, and that could be leading to future problems if there is a lack of uh, historical expertise and insight in in how, the, uh, you know, the Chinese um, government, the Chinese people, how they approach life, how they approach uh, their own negotiations, their own thinking. So here to help us today is Professor Brian William Van Orden. He teaches in the Humanities Department at Yale University and uh, is uh, also the National University of Singapore, joins us today to discuss the importance of understanding Chinese thought. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for your time and being with us today. Thank you for having me. What a, what an interesting um, pro, or you know position you're taking because it's interesting when we think of philosophers we don't necessarily think of um, Confucius per se or or some other um, uh, philosophers but you you bring up a point that we we really are only being um, enlightened or or being being and gathering insight from our own kind of European philosophers. That's exactly right. Um, The late uh, Justice Antonin Scalia, uh, in a uh, dissenting Supreme Court decision, went out of his way to refer to the teachings of Confucius as, quote, the mystical aphorisms of the fortune cookie. Oh, wow. And unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, that's a, a commonly held opinion, although most people don't state it quite that bluntly. Um, but the reality is that there's an extremely rich philosophical tradition, actually a number of, of different philosophical traditions in China, and uh, most people in the U.S., including most U.S. philosophers, are totally ignorant of it. And you, you've kind of done a, a study and found that very few of the universities uh, even offer really any any classes or, or focus on Philosophy, which of of the the main universities, the largest, I guess, top fifty universities, what uh, what percentage of them are actually teaching um, any form of uh, philosophy, Asian philosophy, or other really philosophy? Yeah, well, if you if you look at the top, say, fifty doctoral programs in the U.S., so places where you could be trained to be a professor of philosophy in the U.S., six of them out of the top 50, have anybody in the philosophy faculty who teaches any kind of Chinese philosophy. And wow. it's actually even worse in the field of Indian philosophy. It's even harder to find anybody who teaches that. Is it... What's, what do you, what's the argument from academia? Why, why are they so slow to pick up on this? Is it resources? Is it simply, you know, it's hard enough to teach, uh, you know, European philosophers, let alone getting into Indian, Chinese, uh, you know, African, other philosophers? Well, you hear a bunch of arguments, and unfortunately, none of them are very good. Uh, One argument you hear is that uh, philosophy is, by definition, Western. Hmm. And the irony is that If you teach an introductory philosophy class, one of the things you teach your students is the fallacy of begging the question, which is assuming what you're trying to prove. And so somebody who says, well, look, philosophy is by definition Western, that is 
a perfect example of the logical fallacy of begging the question, because that's just the issue. Is all philosophy Western? And the people who actually bothered to look at philosophy outside uh, the Anglo-European tradition discover that, yes, it obviously is philosophy. It's a very rich set of traditions that are outside the West if you just bother to look at them. Hmm. Boy, so so it's interesting, isn't it? Because then all of a sudden, uh, it almost becomes elitist philosophy, and yet that that very philosophy keeps us from understanding the people we need to negotiate business with, the people we're making trade agreements with, the people that we are trying to partner with uh, on um, you know making the world safe. Is that is that your biggest concern? Is that we're just the simple lack of understanding of China? And, and other cultures simply because we don't study them? Well, it's a, it's a bunch of things. I mean, one the simple reason for studying Chinese philosophy is it's just really good philosophy. So students are missing out if they're not being exposed to this wonderful tradition. Uh, another important reason for studying it is we're an increasingly multicultural society. And so uh, about 86% of all PhDs in philosophy go to people um, who are white, not of Hispanic descent. And that's in complete disproportion to the number of white people in society. So why aren't we getting more people of color and more uh, people of other races in philosophy? In my experience and the experience of many of my colleagues, it's because philosophy often looks like nothing but a temple to the achievement of white males. Hmm. So we need to open up the curriculum to Chinese philosophy, to Latin American philosophy, to Africana philosophy, to Indian philosophy, to make it more appealing. But you're certainly right that even if you're the most hard-headed, practical person in the world, you have to acknowledge that China is increasingly important economically. It's on track to become the biggest economy in the world. In, if it's not already in a few decades, depends on how you measure it. Um, it's got territorial ambitions in the South China Sea, and now there's a possible border war brewing with India. Uh, they may be the key to handling the North Korean crisis. And meanwhile, President Xi Jinping of China is always praising traditional Chinese thought, including Confucianism. And with his approval, they just published a book with his quotations related to traditional Chinese thought. Um, and so he's really praising Confucianism as the new philosophy of China. So how can we not learn about it, given the importance of China to the world today? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's powerful. Teach us a little bit what we what we're missing. What? What are some th- what are some uh, maybe thoughts that from Confucianism that are influencing China's government? Well, one of the things that, I mean, one of my favorite passages in the, the Analects, the sayings of Confucius, um, is uh, this disciple comes to Confucius with a question, um, how do I handle this situation? Confucius gives him a certain answer. A little while later, another disciple comes in, asks the very same question in the very same words, and Confucius gives him an opposite answer, the hmm. exact opposite of what he told the first disciple. A third disciple who has seen both exchanges says, Master, I don't understand why you gave opposite answers to the same question. Can you explain this to me? 
And Confucius says, well, the first disciple has this character flaw, and so the answer he needed to hear was this. The second disciple has the opposite character flaw, so he needed to hear the opposite answer to the question. And I think what this illustrates is central to a lot of Chinese philosophy, particularly Confucianism, is great contextualism and flexibility in dealing with situations. So whereas a lot of Western philosophers, under the influence of things like the Ten Commandments, are looking for abstract general rules that you can never violate, people in the Chinese tradition are often looking for very context-sensitive answers. And so that often confuses Westerners when they're talking to uh, their Chinese business colleagues or when they're trying to understand the nuances of Chinese negotiations. They're often much more subtle than the kind of things we're used to in our heavily you know, law-governed, abstract approach to ethics and politics. Yeah. Boy, you know what you may have just done, Brian, is you may have just given the foundation for why President Trump – uh, is is going to say he gives different answers to the same questions over and over. You may have just created a problem. That's right. Maybe that's what it is. But really, I mean, that's interesting because one of the benef- one of the, I guess, the insights of um, of Chinese philosophy is is contextualism and flexibility, adaptability versus kind of the rigidity of the the Western law. That's. That, that adds a lot, doesn't it? And it actually, I guess, too, that would add a lot in China's government's uh, willingness to enter into certain agreements or how they might negotiate, how they might um, argue their case. Yes, and the, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, China has produced you know, numerous outstanding mathematicians and physicists, and they're, they're perfectly capable of understanding abstract principles. Right. But on a day-to-day basis, you know, when I go to China and I talk to people, a lot of times the way things work is just you go in and you say, oh, who are you? You know, oh, whose friend are you? Um, Oh, great. Okay, yeah, don't worry about filling out the forms. We'll take care of that later. Let's go out to lunch. Hmm. So there's a lot more basis in personal relationships, what the Chinese call guanxi, than in, you know, let's fill out all the forms and let's do things in a really abstract way. Um, it's a lot more based on personal relationships when it comes down to everyday political things and ethical matters. Yeah. Talk about um, Chinese philosophy when it comes to, you know, argumentation and analysis. Is it, it, it seems like, um, I, I guess when, when we get into it, there, there really is, it, it's, there's a benefit to understanding the differences is there any way that we could really fully understand their culture, their thought process uh, enough to to really have it make a difference? I, I think so, and it's um, I'm one of those those people. I, I don't like to draw. I mean, I think it's it's important to understand cultural differences, but I don't want to draw rigid lines between them. And so, uh, you know, I'm just a kid from Western Pennsylvania, and but <laughs> when I go to China. Uh, and I talk to people, whether I'm talking in Chinese or if I switch to English, uh, with the training I've had, I can understand the people I'm talking to. I can understand where they're coming from. I may not agree with them about everything, but I've got a, a deep insight into into what they're thinking and the kind of values they have. And that's something you don't have to spend your entire career studying Chinese thought the way I have. 
if people just got some exposure to Chinese thought, they would have a real leg up hmm. in understanding their Chinese colleagues. Yeah. And so that's why it's so important that our colleges and universities make this sort of thing available and don't have this dogmatic attitude that, well, I don't need to read Chinese philosophy because by definition, it's not really philosophy because it's not what I learned in graduate school. Right. Right. Yeah. It doesn't meet our it doesn't meet our criteria for what constitutes philosophy. Um, let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Brian uh, William Van Norden, and he's uh, walking us through uh, an article he wrote about why the U.S. doesn't understand Chinese thought and why we must, why it would be important. And we'll eventually also get into the fact that there's other philosophies as well that we probably need to be making sure we're, we're making part of our experience in the academic world. We'll continue the journey, folks, trying to do what we can to broaden our horizons. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. We're talking about China and Chinese philosophy and joined by Professor Brian William Van Norden, who teaches in the humanities, um, uh, I guess, department at Yale National University of Singapore. And he's uh, teaching us today about it's it's about understanding philosophy uh, from more than just the European philosophers. There's a global um, database, a global pool that we could be drawing from, a well that we could be drawing from um, philosophically, and yet we, we tend to keep going to the Eurocentric philosophers. And uh, all I think Brian is suggesting is let's let's read everybody. Let's understand everybody. When it comes to China, it would probably help us to read more Confucius and understand maybe if we're going to go negotiate with China – uh, it would help us. Uh, is that? Am I getting your point right here, Brian? You absolutely are. And uh, something you, you brought up earlier was, you know, the, there is a concern on the part of some professors. They'll say, well, wait a second, what do you want us to draw if, if now we're going to teach Confucius and Lao Tzu and the Buddha? You know, what are we going to draw from the curriculum? But the fact is that the, the canon, the list of texts that are considered philosophically important is always changing over time. There was a time in the West when everybody read Cicero. I got to tell you, I've read Confucius and I've read Cicero, and almost no one reads Cicero anymore, the Roman Stoic philosopher. And that's a good thing, because Cicero is pretty boring. Yeah. So (laughs) just because we happen to be teaching somebody in the curriculum now doesn't mean that they're as good as Confucius, or we might not be better off teaching the Buddha instead of Leibniz, um, or Confucius instead of Thales. Hmm. It's You know, it's an interesting point because, too, um, we've had on the show Michael Pewitt from Harvard, who teaches a class on Buddhism at Harvard, which is like one of the most popular classes there. Every All these students are so intrigued with Buddhist thought, and um, it seems also with, you know, enlightenment and more and more uh, people moving to mindfulness, 
it's it's almost like people are more interested now. And and I I think it seems like there would be a market. I don't know if this is how academia works, but there would be a market to be teaching about these philosophers. I think there definitely is. And you're you're exactly right. Um, There's when I started out teaching Chinese philosophy, I was kind of naive. And I thought, oh, as soon as I teach my colleagues how interesting Chinese philosophy is, they'll want to They'll want to teach it. And then I ran into this wall of dogmatism on the part of philosophers who just didn't want to learn about anything outside the Anglo-European tradition. So I got kind of disillusioned, although mm. I still you know, love teaching students about Chinese philosophy for more than 30 years. But in the last few years, I'm really getting optimistic about the prospects for change because there's so many young people who are so excited about learning about philosophy, not just in the Anglo-European tradition, although that's interesting too, but also in the Indian tradition, the Chinese tradition, the African tradition, the Latin American tradition. And they're recognizing the importance of understanding these things if you want to do business with China, if you want to deal with China as a geopolitical power. And more and more younger philosophers, people who are just getting their doctorates in philosophy now, and are going to become the next generation of college professors, even if their area of specialization isn't Chinese thought, if they're a mainstream philosopher, a lot of them are much more open-minded than earlier generations were. So I'm increasingly optimistic about how things are going to go. Well, I didn't even realize, too, though, um, and feminism as well. Feminism as a philosophy uh, as well. So what's interesting, exactly. especially when we see what's going on with um, Charlottesville and, and other um, issues that we're trying to solve, maybe maybe one of our problems is we can't we we won't be able to think our way out of our current problems unless we have a broader view or a broader understanding uh, and more solutions that could come from understanding other philosophies. Yeah, I, I completely agree, and uh, I don't want to get you know, too political here, but in my uh, my book, Taking Back Philosophy: A Multicultural Manifesto. One of the things I argue is that there's a genuine connection between the kind of dangerous ethnocentrism and nationalism that we sometimes see in politics, both in the United States and Europe, and the kind of ethnocentrism that wants to rule out of bounds any kind of philosophy uh, that isn't in the already in the mainstream canon. I mean, some people want to build walls between races and religions, and some people want to build walls intellectually between different kinds of philosophy. And I'm not here to knock uh, Anglo-European philosophy. I love Plato. I love Aristotle. I teach those guys all the time. I just want to knock down the wall so we can also learn about the Buddha and Taoism and Confucianism. How do we... As, uh, you know, kind of just the lay member, the lay person, how can we start dipping our toe in this without being overwhelmed and and also get some context? I guess, is that reading books like the one that's that, that's coming out, take your book, Taking Back Philosophy? How do we get into it without getting swamped and without, you know, getting overwhelmed? Well, sure. I've got a I got a chapter introducing people to some of the issues in my in my forthcoming book. There's also um, some good books like uh, I also wrote an introduction to classical Chinese philosophy for beginners. 
Um, there's, uh, I can recommend, if you want to read the Analects, the sayings of Confucius, I recommend my colleague Edward Swingerland's translation because he not only gives you the original sayings of Confucius, but he gives you thousands of years of Chinese commentary on them to explain hmm. how did Chinese thinkers understand this text and what arguments did they have about how to understand it. Oh, powerful. So I think that's one of the ways you get it, just jump into it. Or a philosopher most people haven't heard of in the West that my students always love is the Taoist Zhuangzi. And that's like Z-H-U-A-N-G-Z-I. Sorry, that's so hard to spell. Z-I, Zhuangzi. Yeah, Zhuangzi. Um, but he's a great Taoist philosopher. Um, you know, Burton Watson has a translation of his writings uh, available from Columbia University Press that is just terrific. And whenever my students read that, they're just blown away. Mm. You know, it starts out with a story... Um, I mean, one of the great stories in it is about how Zhuangzi says he went to sleep and he was dreaming he was a butterfly. And when he woke up, he wasn't sure if he was Zhuangzi, who had dreamt that he was a butterfly, or was he a butterfly that was now dreaming that he was Zhuangzi? <laughs> wow. And that's the kind of, you know, lovely, you know, charming, but also philosophically profound stories you get from someone like Zhuangzi in Chinese philosophy. Yeah. Holy cow! It's um, it really it, it, there's there's really no end to the to the, and to, just to the mind shifting that can go on um, when when you get a little deeper into this. As we as we leave you, can you leave us with what what's one of your favorite um, thoughts that uh, that's that's impacted your life from Confucius or some some other Chinese philosopher? Sure. Uh, one of my my favorite things is from the, the Confucian uh, Mengzi. And one of the things he says is, he says, suppose a human being all of a sudden saw a child about to fall into a well. He said any human being in that situation would have a feeling of alarm and compassion for the child. And if you didn't have that reaction, well, you just wouldn't even be a human being. You would be some kind of inhuman animal. Mm. And he says... Everybody has a capacity to be a better person if you develop that heart of compassion that you would show for a child about to fall into a well. Yeah. Boy, oh boy, do we need that, Brian, or what? Great stuff. Brian William Van Orden is his name. Go check out his uh, book, Taking Back Philosophy, a Multicultural Manifesto. And again, Brian uh, teaches humanities at Yale uh, National University of Singapore, NUS, and is the, uh, just you know opening our minds. There are a, a variety of other philosophers, uh, and a lot of them, in fact, that uh, we're just not even paying attention. They're not even on the radar. And what are we missing? What truth are we losing? What light? isn't on the earth or isn't, you know, in the mainstream because we just aren't well-read enough. We're not broad enough in our thinking and our philosophy. Powerful stuff. We'll continue the journey, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. You know, uh, Confucius gives us great insight, instructions for life. 
But uh, Terry has a story of a of I guess like a state legislator that he he made a list of instructions for his driver. Yeah. So Representative Todd Rokita of Indiana has a list of uh, rules that are required. Uh, the drivers his drivers are required never to be without. No, again, the guy has his own driver. Yeah. It's a leaked eight pages. He's in a very contentious. Uh, uh, election going up okay. against a uh, Senator Joe Donnelly yeah. of Indiana, and so they feel like you know some people are trying to tilt something in his favor. Um, so it says the rules for driving this. The manual demands that his driver avoid unnecessary conversation with the lawmaker, avoid sudden acceleration or braking. Drivers are also expected to serve as human shields to block photographers from taking embarrassing pictures of. Rokita, and bring him a cup of uh, black coffee and empty his trash can whenever they pick him up at home. Okay. Uh, there are additional responsibilities. They're supposed to collect information from as many people as possible at his uh, events while also taking pictures for social media and taking note of all interactions. Drivers are, are also to make sure he has a drink at all times but never let him be photographed with a drink. Wow. This is this, this is maybe he just needs to go to Confucius. It's yeah, he's making life really complicated. Um, Make sure he has a drink, but don't. He's not supposed to hold the drink. Yeah, pour the drink in his mouth when he opens it, like a little bird, baby bird. <laughs> <laughs> and so they're saying that the uh, the opposition. No, there's so there's a, a Democrat Joe Donnelly is the senator from Indiana. He's running for his seat, but there's a Republican primary. Okay. So he, his, they, they're, they're accusing the Republican tra- challenger for leaking this document. For, yeah, for sure. You don't want to look stupid because you make all these rules. The campaign spokesman argued in defense of the eight-page memo saying there's nothing embarrassing about always being prepared. Hold on. An eight-page memo on what your driver's supposed to do. Yes. I mean, I get that if you're like in the Secret Service driving the president's you know, magical car. Right. Eight pages seems appropriate. But if you're some Indi- Indiana legislator, yeah. Maybe he's a big deal. Apparently. Don't do what Elaine Bennis on Seinfeld did and pretend to be deaf so you don't have to talk to them. Yeah, that's a great it's a great rule, too. See? the Confucius, sure, he does great work, but so does, so does the Matt Townsend Show. We brought you all of these other ideas. How to feed your boss like a bird. Just keep the drink available, but don't show the drink. Lots of fun, folks. Straight ahead, this is the Matt Townsend Show, walking you to your weekend right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Yes, 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 folks. Happy Men's Grooming Day. Sure, it's Friday. You're excited for the weekend. But most important today is Men's Grooming Day. Uh, and by the way, some of us are taking it very serious here. I'm with Jeff Simpson and, of course, Terry South. Terry is wearing a long sleeve shirt today. He's wearing, he's got sleeves and a collar. I, I've never seen him so well groomed in my life. Yeah, he looks great. He but looks- I think he doesn't wear the sleeves as we discussed in the last hour because his muscles just pop them right off. He, he's like Hulk without the green hue. Yeah. You know what I mean? When he gets mad, he just stays the same color. He's like a hairy, pasty, white Hulk. 
<laughs> Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> he's not He's not in the room so we can That's talk. That's why you feel safe yeah. saying that. He doesn't have a microphone. But he does go back and listen to the show. Yeah. You do know that, right? But I think what he'll do is he'll think it was you that said that. Oh, because some people mistake me for you sometimes? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, in fact, on my Facebook page, somebody posted one of the segments that you did while I was sick as it was me, as if it were me. No. Yeah. Who was it? Uh, I don't remember who posted it. But they said it was me doing my show. But it, And then I listened to it. And I'm like, I don't remember doing that interview. And it was you. <laughs> so even my own people don't know. So you're getting credit for my work? Yeah. Hmm. Sounds about right. <laughs> Come again? Come again? Just Speaking of getting credit for your work, in about uh, 55 minutes or so, you will be doing your show during my show hour. And we've got a huge announcement. You'll be making a huge announcement about, I guess, another baby coming? No. Okay. It, may it was or... a project that was kind of like my baby. It was a project kind of like your baby that you may or may not have had some influence on from Amazon Prime. It is now available on Amazon Prime. Hmm. I'm totally confused. Does, oh, is it about grooming for Men's Grooming Day? No. Well, that'll be that'll all be straight ahead at uh, at uh, what time are we saying nine Eastern? And you mentioned that a lot of people confuse the two of our voices. Yeah, we're going to be talking about films that people confuse with the other. So, film doppelgangers. Oh wow, interesting. Mm-hmm. That's kind of an interesting idea. Give me an example of well, a film people confuse. It's very timely, and this isn't one of the examples, but uh, I'll give you it as an example. Today, uh, the film Logan Lucky comes out. Okay. The Hillbilly Heist movie. Oh, yeah. Not to be confused with the film Logan, which came out earlier in the year. Hmm. But I'll give you one example. Uh, The first one we'll be discussing is the film A Bug's Life. Okay. That same year, the film Ants came out. Ah, yeah. That was confusing. One was a Disney Disney Pixar. The other one... Was a Woody Allen, Sylvester Stallone, Sharon Stone film. Okay. Both animated. Yeah. Both about bugs, but not the same film. So do you know, um, I get, I sometimes get actors confusion. Oh, sure. You see articles all the time online about uh, celebrity doppelgangers. You know, two celebrities that look exactly the same. Or like two movies that felt similar and I can't discern, like um, Ghostbusters. Uh Uh-huh. And I don't know why, but uh, Ghostbusters and what's the what's the one with the oh what's it called Caddyshack? Okay, they both have Bill Murray. So I think it's this Bill Murray echo, and I can't remember which joke is from which show. Same writers. Mm-hmm. Oh, is it? Okay, see that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So okay, good. That that that's why people need to listen and watch the sh- or listen to because we can't watch the show. Yeah. screen cleaning. And then one more thing that's coming up. What? Do you ever go to the Red Box? No. I drive by them all the time. Oh. Well, the do you, Red Do you still go to the Red Box? Um, I got tired of having scratched DVDs that didn't that's play. That's a good point. It's that, a good point. You know, that made me mad. Yeah. So now I go to the Yellow Box, the Green Box. We'll be, we'll be mentioning movies that you typically only see at the Red Box that are also kind of film doppelgangers with much more... Successful films. Yeah. So it's a company that is dedicated to grabbing onto the coattails of successful movies 
in order to make a quick buck. Okay. That sounds kind of negative, but in a good way. No, because Cole and I watched one of these films and we're going to give a positive review. Hold on. Did you guys watch it together? No, we each, we each watched a different film. Because I was like, Terry and I didn't get the memo on that. Yeah, I didn't get a chance to turn you down on that. When are we going to start hanging out, guys? It seems like we never hang out after the show. I what, know. And I, I just got an email that my softball team is even having a barbecue. Yeah. So I mean, a team that I hardly know still. We're together every day. I know. I, let's just put Terry in charge of this and see if something happens. It'll happen. No problem. Some, we'll show up and there will be like a half bag of tortilla chips yeah. and yeah. a can of Terry salsa. Terry loves a good social activity. <laughs> we celebrated uh, Halloween. I brought little sandwich bags with like 10 candy corn in each one. And just oh, gave there it you go. Some, yeah. That was a great treat, though. Yeah. That know, really was. It really livened spirits. So we'll let you know when we're having our um, team party so all of you can be involved. In fact, we'll probably live stream it. Just for It'll fun. be a short video. Um, also today, we're going to be talking about help for parents. Uh, if, you, if your child has anxiety or depression, we'll have a counselor here helping us understand how you should approach the child. You know, you don't want to scare them away. You don't want to create a bigger complex for them. So how to help your child with anxiety or depression, that's straight ahead. Plus also some empty news. A woman found hiding in the bed of a pickup truck. Just, just checking out the stars. Not a big deal. Sure. I mean – Getting ready for the eclipse. What mm-hmm. better place? I mean, really. The eclipse is Monday, but she now, was... It would have been a little weird if there was a shell on the back of the truck. Yeah. But that wasn't the problem here. So it's, okay. it's a good excuse. That's good. That's yeah. good. See? And uh, another rule we're going to talk about, break up a, a myth that if you're going to apply for a job and you leave your resume and then you don't get the job, you probably shouldn't rob that same store. Right. Just a little... Heads up. I think you and I ought to have like a little mock interview. Okay. You be the interviewer and okay. I'll be the interviewee. All right. This will be great. Yeah. Well, so we will do a little uh, a little um, dramatization. That's what we like to call it here on the Matt Townsend Show. We will be acting out the resume job application, then turning to a stick up. So I'll watch you. I'll, I'll want you to ask me what my qualifications are okay. for this job. <laughs> This will be really, really good. But before we get to that and the empty news, let's first get to the real news out there with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country we should be worried about? Captain of a Navy warship that lost seven sailors in a collision with a commercial container ship in June will be relieved of command and nearly a dozen other face punishment, the vice chief of naval operations said Thursday. The AP reports that Admiral William Morham told reporters the top three leaders aboard the USS Fitzgerald, which was badly damaged in the collision, off the coast of Japan will be removed from duty aboard the ship. The Admiral said the bridge team or the sailors responsible for keeping watch on the ship's bridge to ensure it remains safe had lost situational awareness, which left them unable to respond quickly enough to avoid the disaster once the oncoming container ship was spotted. But yeah. The investigation is ongoing. We'll figure it out. If, if, the, if the Navy's getting rid of a bunch of people, oh, yeah. then I think we know what the answer is going to be. Yeah, no one was watching for uh, something the size of a skyscraper coming right at them. That's a big quit. Yeah. Yeah. Chronic pain can be downright unbearable, and opioids to treat them can be hard to quit. In fact, with opioid addiction claiming more lives than ever, researchers found that in 2015, one in three Americans took opioid painkillers, sometimes prescribed by physicians, sometimes not. 
Sometimes borrowed from Aunt Judy. Right. And with aging population in the U.S. and beyond, researchers are now helping governments put a price on pain so the officials can decide how much of a spending priority to make pain management and research into pain management. In short, the new research says that for people who are 50 and older in the U.S., avoiding chronic pain is worth anywhere from $56 to $145 a day. Oh, wow. Chronic pain. How much can, would you want to pay to end that pain or to yeah. ease the pain? Specifically, researchers looked at three things, each respondent's life satisfaction, income level, and pain level, to heavily over, oversimplify it, as the Washington Post put it. The numbers represent either how much extra money a person suffering from chronic pain would need to make every day to enjoy life satisfaction of someone not in pain. Oh, boy. Or how much a person not experiencing pain would have to lose to experience the life satisfaction of someone in pain. The range adds up to $20,000 to $53,000 a year, which almost reaches the country's $56,000 median household income. So we're we're looking at an unmanageable amount of money is what they're talking about. I like how Jeff handles his pain. How's that? He throws back milk duds. That will ease all this kinds guy, of pain. This guy, he's like stuff. taking 13 milk duds a day. I toss back, yeah, like five boxes each and every day. But you can't now because you're on your diet, your super slimming diet. That's true. But I went to the movies the other day, ate the suggested serving size, 13 milk duds. But My wife will do that. But on a diet, you probably shouldn't have any milk duds. Well, it's my first candy in weeks, so I think I'm okay. That's the beginning <laughs> By the way, you know a milk dud is the gateway drug. Mm, It'll lead you down a road. Totally. Finally, Star Wars Jedi Master Obi-Wan Kenobi could be getting his very own movie. The Hollywood Reporter revealed Thursday that Disney is in the very early stages of developing a standalone film about the man who trained Anakin Skywalker. Really? There's not a script yet for the project, but Disney is reportedly in talks with Stephen Daldry, the Oscar-nominated director of Billy Elliot and the Hours, to direct... It's not yet clear whether Ewan McGregor, who played Obi-Wan in the prequel trilogy, would reprise his role. He's made it very clear that he's available and willing, though. Yeah. Obi-Wan movie apparently isn't the only Star Wars spinoff. Disney is considering other projects in development, include standalone movies centered on Jabba the Hutt, Boba Fett. What about Chewbacca? There is an installment in the series with Star Wars Last Jedi out. On the 15th of December. Wow. I do not have my tickets yet, but if they were made available, I will buy them tomorrow. Whoa. Really? Oh, yeah. You are that in. <laughs> You're like... <laughs> Why is that some kind of a, a <laughs> statement to make? Of course. Sounded like some uh, lightsaber sound <laughs> effects there. Um, is that why you're wearing sleeves today? No, I have a thing <laughs> at a place at a time later today. Obi-Wan Kenobi launching a new show today? Maybe. Maybe there's a, a table read or something that I need to sit in on. Oh, now you're sitting in on table reads. Yeah, yeah. This is exciting. He, uh, Terry's looking good today on National Men's Grooming Day. Trim your nose hair, man. Trim your nose hair. Trim your nose hair. <laughs> pull it out. No, no, no. Just trim. Ugh. You pull it out, it could lead to further issue. No, but then it creates tears. Then walk into your wife and say, I was just thinking... About how much I love you. I'm so in love. And then you get all those, yeah. And she's like, get over here, you baby. And and I need to do that because with college football approaching. Yeah, you're about, she's about to be a widow. It becomes a point where it's like, she goes, we need to go do whatever. And I'm like, "Uh, there's this kind of busy. And she goes, you're not even watching a specific game. And I go, but there's like seven games I'm flipping through. You know what? She is the most patient human on this earth. 
No, she's just okay with letting me do my thing. Well, but she lives with you. But, I mean, it's within reason. There's some things that need to be accomplished. You get all that other stuff done. So we discuss these ahead of time. We set a plan. I, I look at things. Okay, this one's a priority. This is just yeah. something I want to sit on the couch and watch. It's not you, a big deal. Then you have your weekend binging mm. of your favorite beverage. What? Without caffeine. No caffeine. I don't think I could get away with this. And, no. you know, the baseball postseason is coming up. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I don't know if I could get away no, with my this. Wife, my wife is so visual that if she sees me, like even when I was sick, she would look at me like, you're still alive? Wow. Because she she wants me moving and happy and doing. She doesn't like me well, sitting, watching anything. It helps when my wife met me, I was working at a sports radio station. Yeah. So she knew I was kind no, of there. She's just that a was you're, doing, you're doing research. It was. Yeah. Well, that's what I told her is all that time I was like, well, I'm working. Really? And she went, she'd roll her eyes and walk what out of the room. What do you call it now? Because you do work when you watch. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, that argument obviously is yeah. gone, but she knows I'm hooked, so there's no <laughs> argument. I mean, you're, you're a full-on addict. Let's yeah. just it's okay. It. It's I mean, okay. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that kind of addiction. It does ruin a marriage, though. It doesn't we'll ruin about. a marriage. Not if you wear sleeves. Okay, great. Glad he's back to the sleeves. Hey, uh, we got to get to this story about a Florida man that robs a gas station that he had just applied for a job. The MT News Team. First on the scene, fifth on facts. So, Matt. Yeah. We talked about this. What's the What's the worst job interview you've ever had? I don't. I, well, I've had job interviews for jobs I didn't want, like where they came and sought me out and then – like tempted me to go, we could pay you all this money. And I go to the job interview, but I didn't really want the job. Sure. That was the worst. Cause then the whole time I'm like, I'm just faking it here. Wow. It was horrible. Your worst interviews are better than some of my best. <laughs> really? I went to an audition one time and it was a callback actually. So I had impressed them enough that I was now reading for the cat or the, uh, the director of the commercial. Really? So I, I don't know if it was nerves or what, but after I had done my read, I look across, and they're sitting by this table full of chips and other goodies and refreshments. And I on my way, I was like, hey, can I have one of these? Because they had these sweet potato chips that I'd never tried. I'd always wanted to try. I was like, hey, can I have one of these? And they're like, uh, sure. And I grabbed one, ate it, and walked out. I didn't get the part. You didn't? And the casting director who had called me in said, I'm not mad or anything, but uh, by the way, if you ever do that again, you're not going to be invited back here. <laughs> so that was one of my worst. No, that's pretty bad. Not to be rude, but that's, yeah. that's pretty bad. Okay. So there's this guy that, uh, you know, it's a good tip. Don't steal from yeah. the employer that you're hoping to work for. Especially if you just hand them an, uh, handed them a, like a resume with your home address, your name on it. Exactly. Yeah. So that's exactly what happened. Police say dim-witted Anthony Thomas stole $130 Tuesday just minutes after asking for work at a gas station in Ocala, Florida. The 33-year-old had just handed over his full name and address to bosses when he spotted that the register had been left open. Maybe oh, this boy. was a test. Was Maybe a they test. were testing totally. him. With the cashier's back turned, surveillance footage appears to show him reaching over and lifting out wads of notes that he hid, that he then hid uh. in his clothes. Cops tracked down Thomas, who put up a fight before being arrested soon after. And uh, he said, I didn't rob no store. <laughs> 
So Thomas. How do you think that interview would sound? If you were the yeah. interviewer. So if I'm the interviewer and you're Thomas, mm-hmm. I'd say, hey, Thomas, good to meet you. Hey, uh, t- so why do you want to work with us? Why do you want to work here at uh, Dollar Mart? Well, you, I think you would understand that I'm very qualified for this job. I'm quick with my hands. <laughs> I handle a lot of money. Okay, yeah. I spend a lot of time in convenience stores, let's just say. Um, you know, you know and I'm, you very, were... I'm very familiar with surveillance cameras. Interesting. You're a master of distraction. Yes. You can handle a good distraction. Yeah. Boy. So do, do I have the job? Uh, can you can you rotate old meat on a on a hot dog burner to keep uh, the hot dogs you know selling? Let's just say these fists have pounded into f- animal flesh. <laughs> wow. So yeah, you could say I could handle meat. You know what? Uh, I don't know what it is about me, Anthony, but uh, you got the job, my friend. All right. I just I don't know what it is. Uh, I, you know, I yeah, had to I, fire I, the last four guys because they were stealing from me. I think you. I feel good about you. I think you've. I think there's something behind you. Really? Yeah. Oh, you, you might want to take check a look. Oh, yeah. No, what the? Ha-ha! Get your hands out of that. <laughs> that was a dramatization. And, and scene. And scene. <laughs> we just, uh, we, we like to act them out every once in a while for you folks because we think it just bring, makes, yes, thank you. It's more dramatic. Anthony did get the job and then he did get five to ten in the pokey. Yeah. Actually, I guess that's petty robbery there, petty theft, I guess. For 130 bucks? Yeah. Come he, on. he didn't pull a gun. Come on. He just snuck a – just st- stole a wad of bills, right? Yeah. <sighs> it's hard. It's hard to help people that don't want to be helped sometimes. Try to give you a job. Anyway, uh, we got a lot to cover, folks. We are going to be speaking with Heather Nelson up next, how to help parents of children with anxiety or depression. She's a counselor that will give you some great tips on uh, moving forward. With uh, children that really want to succeed, want to grow, but are just battling a very basic, common issue that uh, a lot of us have. We'll be getting there and then, of course, continuing the journey with more empty news. This is The Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Being a parent can be very difficult in more ways than one. Watching your children go through hard times is especially painful, especially if they're dealing with anxiety or depression. Depression is the most common mental health disorder among adults right after anxiety disorders, and it is becoming even more and more common. So how do you effectively parent a child that is dealing with one or both of these disorders? And how do you know whether it's just a phase or something that you need to uh, seek professional help on? Here to answer some of our questions is Heather Nelson. She's an adolescent psychologist, uh, an LCSW, and and uh, we're excited to have her on the show today. Heather, thank you for being with us today. Uh, thank you for inviting me. This is a big deal because we do see more and more um, children, and I guess just everybody, facing anxiety and depression. What I, One of my, my big concerns when it comes to depression is or anxiety is, is how we approach the child because it seems like if we, if we approach them with too much intensity and fear in our eyes – we might even deepen the problem. Well, sure, that makes sense. I think um, it starts more in the relationships before you're noticing problems. So it's more about building a really 
um, healthy relationship with your children so that you can talk and you can bring up difficult subjects without them being afraid to even talk to you. Um, so that's, you know, being part of their life, knowing what's important to them, knowing what they're nervous about, knowing what their dreams are, that kind of thing. How do you know uh, what part of their anxiety is kind of normal childhood, just dealing with new things in life versus an actual disorder? How do you discern between the two? Well, we all have anxiety at some time or another, or, you know, we're worried or we're scared. Um, but when it gets in the way of their functioning, you know, their everyday kind of life, when they don't want to go to school or they don't want to play with friends or they don't want to go outside because they're worried about the wind, you know, whatever, when it gets in the way of their normal functioning, that's when it's a real problem. Yeah, because then all of a sudden they're opting out. What is the connection um, uh, between anxiety and depression? Because it seems like they go together many times. They do. They go hand in hand. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, everybody's a little different, but I'm not sure which drives which. But often if somebody's feeling really depressed and down, then they stay inside and then their anxiety increases because then they're starting to worry about, you know, what's going to happen at school or whatever. And so then their depression gets worse. It just kind of drives each other. Yeah. Do we know why, Heather, why we see more and more cases of anxiety with our kids and um, even adults? Are we just diagnosing more? We're kind of maybe we're just seeing it more as an issue or is it really manifesting more? You know, I don't. I don't really know the answer to that. That's a really good question. But I would say a couple of things. I think we're becoming more aware of mental health issues and, excuse me, a little bit less less afraid of it. So I think it probably is getting diagnosed more because people are getting help more often and more frequently. And I think in the schools they're more aware of what to watch for. Um, And so I don't know that it's like an issue that's, you know, just getting worse and worse and worse. It's not, yeah, but maybe I, not an epidemic, but... Right, right. But I do think um, we're probably... And kids are faced with more difficult things than, you know, 20 years ago. So it could be that there's just more going on, but also I think people are more aware. Yeah. Well, and, and we're more aware of, of, you know, mental health issues, but we're also more aware with our phones and everything where now I can watch... Just in the news today, a truck drives down a row, hits 100 people, kills 13, and I can actually watch a video of it, which, boy, is something you wouldn't have ever seen in your life in the history of mankind, right? So yep. now yeah, all of a sudden true. it's probably adding – we have more and more information of what we probably should be worried about. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, sometimes we get traumatized from stuff like that. Yeah. You know, so just watching something like that can have its own effect on us. So, yeah, for sure. So if I see my child, uh, you know, manifesting some of the signs and, and maybe help us with what those are, the signs of anxiety, um, what, what, how should I respond as a parent? Like, what should the initial approach be? Um, okay, so a couple of things there. I guess first you're asking what would be some of the signs, right? Yeah. Um, so... Anxiety and depression, because they go hand in hand, you might be kind of watching for both. But anxiety, definitely, like, um, fearful to do the things that they normally do. Like, if they just don't want to go to Walmart because there's too many people there, or they don't want to go to school because somebody might notice, you know, their clothes they're wearing, or, you know, on and on like that. So yeah. just 
normal things that they normally and typically would want to do, they're suddenly feeling really scared about. So that would be, you know, something to watch for. But also, along with that, you know, any changes in behavior like um, just not wanting to leave the house, not wanting to leave their room, not wanting to play with the friends that they normally play with, or, you know, teenagers, you know, that it could be a completely change in their friend groups. So any kind of out of the norm or changes in behaviors are something to watch for. And, I mean, those are very common things in a, in a teenager, an adolescent's life to have a shift and then all of a sudden, yeah, their their grades are starting to suffer. There's some kind of major shift going on. When you see those changes happening, what, what should the initial approach be? Um, it seems like a lot of times it might make the parent fearful, might make them anxious, the parent anxious, and then the parent sometimes carries their anxiety to the child that may be anxious, and it seems like kind of an ugly combination. Sure. I, that's absolutely the truth. I think parents' initial response, I think often we, you know, kind of go to that shame, like, what are we doing wrong? So if we can step away from that and kind of become their coaches, so staying really calm ourselves and being able to just talk about it and problem solve with them and, you know, just kind of saying, I'm noticing this, can you tell me what's going on? Just have a regular, normal, calm conversation without it being, you know, one that escalates to yelling. Um, sometimes that still happens because the kid feels really defensive, but I think that's the best approach is just to stay really calm, not be angry, not be upset, maybe not even be scared, but just more like I'm wondering what's going on. Yeah, maybe just curious, huh? Just Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm, and I guess share the data you're noticing, right? You don't even need to make an interpretation like, it seems like you're falling apart. <laughs> maybe <laughs> in, instead make it more simple, like I'm just noticing that You've been spending a lot of time in your room. Right. Absolutely. That would be a great way to start the conversation. And I guess part of this is um, how, how what I always teach is how you how you approach a topic today really is dependent on what you've been doing for the past years. So if you've never brought up emotions and feelings and uh, nervousness, and if you've never brought any of this up before, it's going to be a little bit more difficult than if you've been over time, sharing and talking about emotion. Right. And that's what I was saying. It, it really starts long before you see any kind of signs of anxiety and depression is your relationship building. So I try to help parents see, like, even when their kids are really small and they're reading books, like, to not- notice, like, how is that how is that kid feeling in the story? Hmm. What do you think he's going to do? Problem solving, you know? And so you've already had that kind of conversation over the years. That's so, so good. I mean, really, and, and what if you could, ju- if all you could do is get your child effective at recognizing emotion, which we kind of do well, but we don't do it overtly, and sharing emotion, you, you're you already halfway to, to having the healing benefits of, you know, kind of effective communication. Right. Absolutely. I think that's where it starts. And I guess um, one another thing I've seen, and tell me if you see this with your, with your uh, clients and patients, is... Uh, a lot of times I'll have a parent that that probably is already anxious themselves and they bring their child to see me that's anxious. And mm-hmm. the anxious parent uh, anxiously tells me about their child's anxiety. And right. I sit there and I look and I'm thinking, boy, if I could just help the parent be a little less anxious, we might be able to have the parent model um, healthier anxious man, anxiety management. How much of this do you think is um, 
is just how we do our own parenting, how we do our own uh, modeling of healthy management of anxiety? Well, that's a good question. I, I think it's really important because, um, you know, I, is it environmental or <laughs> is it biological? I think there's certainly a genetic link when it comes to anxiety, but you're right. If parents know how to handle their own anxiety, they model it for their kids, and so it doesn't become quite the same kind of issue. Yeah. But sometimes that, that's not true. Sometimes the parent isn't really anxious, and the kid is, and so they're confused by the emotion. So you kind of have both sides. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and again, there's, it's, there's a lot of really cool um, tools and, and, and skills and ability, which is why bringing up the idea of being the coach and um, putting your place uh, not as the therapist per se, but just as coaching your kids and your family on their anxiety, it seems like a pretty healthy uh, approach to this. Um, let's do this. Let's take a break and we will continue our discussion. We're speaking with Heather Nelson. Heather is uh, an LCSW and is helping us understand. She's been doing this for more than 14 years and has been uh, has got some great ideas on how to help our children to to basically manage to understand their anxiety and their depression. And we will continue this discussion and journey straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. We'll be right back. We are talking about how to help your children with anxiety and depression. Just some gentle guidance, some gentle coaching that you can be giving them, support that they need as they're battling uh, with their own emotions. And anxiety and depression uh, are becoming more and more obvious, I think, to a lot of us. And, And understanding how to maybe intervene a little earlier in their lives could be a very powerful thing. Joining us to talk about it is Heather Nelson who is a counselor. She's been doing this for more than 14 years and has a unique ability to build relationships with people of all ages. She specializes in treating children with abuse issues, teen issues, and adult depression and anxiety. You can find out more about Heather at InsightCounselingLehigh.com. InsightCounselingLehigh.com. Heather, again, thank you for being with us. Thank you. When you think about... uh, Children. I mean, a lot of times we. It seems like we're we're kind of shocked. I, I have a lot of parents that that seem that that they're a little overwhelmed or shocked because they didn't even know their child had anxiety until they sent them away to college, or in in like in a lot of cases with LDS people, they send them on an LDS mission and then boom, the next thing they know, they're battling this anxiety or depression. Is it? Um, is there like an adult onset of anxiety, or is this something that's probably been leaving clues their entire life? Um, I think more often than not, there are probably some clues along the way, but they've been um, resilient enough to kind of bounce back, where maybe when they're out on their own and faced with kind of different kinds of stresses, um, and it probably manifests itself in a way that they don't know how to manage. Yeah, I guess that's part of it, because as, as we are... 
I mean, I, I have a child that has anxiety, especially, I guess, social anxiety, and we noticed it in kindergarten. And so it was from the get-go, we were seeing the signs that we were that this was going to be a battle. Um, but I, part of it is our schools create such a nice structure, and I guess once you get them used to it, they may be able to kind of have a predictable life with a predictable structure. It's almost when the structure goes away that you start to see other issues. Right. I, I think that's absolutely the truth. Kids really function best when there's structure. Um, so, you know, you may notice in the summers where they kind of behave differently because they don't have that same kind of structure. Interesting. Does um, What are some other things that you parents can do with their children as as they see more and more uh, anxious, anxiousness coming into, the, into their lives? Um, well, I, I kind of mentioned resiliency. I think resiliency is huge. So I, with the kids I see or even the parents, I kind of talk to them about, like, imagining, um, you know, a beach ball, a rubber ball that you have to blow up. And if you only put, like, half the air and then drop it, it just plucks. But mm-hmm. if you fill it all the way nice and full, and then you drop it, it bounces back, bounces back even higher. Um, and I think that's kind of what resiliency is, is if we're taking good care of ourselves and we're, you know, using coping skills and self-care and all those kinds of things, then it's like the beach ball is nice and full and we can bounce back. Hmm. So that's kind of, I guess, the imagery I use to be able to help them see kind of where they're at and what things they could do to help themselves and their children. What are the, that's a great metaphor. What's, what are some of the, the, what's some of the air that we can, that we can pump in them that makes them more resilient? What are some of the traits of resiliency? Well, there are all sorts of things that, that you can do, but definitely coping skills. So um, so knowing, being able to recognize their own feelings and then knowing what things they can do to help themselves through it, not hide from the feelings or push them away, but like allow them to be, but still be able to function and not have that intensity of the emotion. Hmm. So it can be, for every kid, it can be different. I always try to think of like um, the four areas of ourselves. Um, I mean, there could be more, but I just do it basic. So physical, so what are some things that they can do physically when they're feeling really, you know, if it's like a thermometer and you're zero and one is just fine and 10 is really, really hot. So if you're at a 10, what can you do to take down to an eight? You know, that kind of thing. So active things that they enjoy that are physical for them. That's great. And so you can go physical, social, uh, spiritual, intellectual. I mean, that's what's cool is... And there really are there. There's an abundance of solutions, um, and and on top of all of this, there also might be a chemical side to this. And so, I guess that's one of the reasons why, if we're seeing um, if we're seeing this to a point that it's really worrying us, they're I guess they're really isolating themselves, or they're acting out in other ways, and we see it deeply affecting their lives. We take them to a counselor, I guess, um, our, our, and help us understand our counselors. Because a lot of parents think, okay, yeah, my son needs some pill for this or my daughter needs some medication for this. Is the best place to start a counselor or is it with our pediatrician? Is it with a psychiatrist? Um, All of those are probably okay answers. I would say I would start with a counselor um, because then they can start to learn some skills to manage. And then if that isn't enough, then either the family doctor or a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist is um, a specialist in mental health issues. Um, So they're always a great resource, but sometimes if it's just anxiety with, you know, just a kind of regular kind of anxiety, not a whole bunch of other stuff together, then the family doctors can 
definitely treat that or even depression. Mm. And we've talked a lot with psychiatrists on the show that the kind of the the best mix they're seeing, I guess, is if you're going to put somebody on meds, you, you still would want that child or person going to counseling to to learn coping skills, to be able to voice and, and, and identify how to be more resilient. And the combination of both is great. Yep, that's that's what I tell people all the time. If you're going to be on medicine, which is great, I mean, it, there is definitely a place for medicine, but you also need to learn some new skills to be able to manage things differently. And which, which is also interesting as we have a kind of this influx of more and more understanding about mental health and anxiety and depression. Simultaneously, there seems to be kind of this movement in the country in, um, in mindfulness, in meditation practices. Um, have, have you ever gotten into meditation or, you know, some of those self-soothing techniques uh, of using the mind to help control anxiety? Yes, absolutely. I love mindfulness. I think it makes a difference with so many people. Um, it's a little different to teach that to young kids, but it's still the same concept. You just have to be a little more creative in how you teach it. But mindfulness is really helpful because it allows us, I think, you know, our mind is going all of the time. And so we don't often know what our mind's thinking about because we're thinking of so many things at the same time. It's kind of like driving the car. You know, when you're first learning to drive, you're so careful about um, you know, where you put the mirror, your seatbelt, don't have the radio on, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. And then, you know, down the road, six months, you're kind of just like, turn the radio up loud, thinking of 50,000 things, playing with your friends, you know. So you're not thinking as much. You're not staying as focused. So our mind is going all the time. So that part of our mind that is aware of what we're thinking about, that's what mindfulness helps with. It's like being aware of our thoughts, being aware of our emotions, just noticing all those kinds of things. Well, yeah, and how many of us? So at first, we're we're kind we're probably overthinking everything, and then we get so complacent and used to it that eventually we're driving eighty miles an hour eating a hamburger, you right. know. And, yeah, that's and, what I that's what I mean. Like we we don't really pay attention. Our mind just kind of drifts. Isn't that funny? And then all of a sudden, you don't even realize you were just driving, and you just drove past a highway patrolman, and boy, next yeah. thing you know, like were you there? I didn't even see you. It's the strangest thing. Yeah, yeah that is true. Don't you love it? That, that's our, our mind is amazing. And so just being able to kind of slow it down and focus um, on what's going on, what's happening in the moment. Yeah. Is really great. Yeah. One of the things I also noticed that um, a lot of times anxiousness, anxious people – um, they tend to want to like withdraw themselves from the anxiety. They they want to isolate themselves or get themselves away from it. And then I found that when they do that, they they tend to not live up to their potential. They tend to not offer their great offering, which to me seems to then perpetuate depression. Um, because now I'm like I'm not doing what I need to be doing, and then we get depressed, and then it makes it harder for tomorrow. So I'm even more anxious tomorrow because I didn't go today, and it's this crazy cycle of thinking. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So if we can kind of slow that down a little bit, and you know, avoidance, you know, is part of anxiety. We want to avoid all those scary things, and actually. Avoiding it actually makes it grow. You get more and more scared, you know. Right. So you're right. So then the depression kicks in. So being able to make room for those emotions, just allow them to be, um, and then learn how to deal with it, that's really important. Mm. Um, as we're uh, wrapping this up, what what advice do you give um, 
to parents, I mean, I guess you don't, again, not every child will be the same. Not every, not every child is going to have, even if you have anxiety, even if your spouse has anxiety, doesn't mean your children all will. How do you, how do you coach parents to, to kind of um, take it as it comes, you know, versus over parenting in a way that might induce more anxiety? Um, so I, I think if you have that mentality that, you know, you're the coach for the emotions, then it's okay if your kids feel what they feel. And so then you just allow them to, to notice it, you talk about it, and then kind of make some decisions about what you do with it. So you're, if you do have that mentality, my role is to coach them through it instead of being afraid of their emotions, you know, as the parent. Because sometimes I think that's our reaction is we're just so afraid of the emotions our kids have, you know, that temper tantrum or whatever. Yeah. We're often afraid of it. But if we have that kind of thought in our mind, like I'm a coach for them and every emotion is okay and there's a reason that they're having it. I mean, most kids, I think, are inherently good. Yeah. And so when they're having a meltdown or something, there's some kind of reason or purpose behind it. It's not to make everybody around them miserable. So if you can think about it that way, is okay, so they're feeling this, what could be causing it, kind of discuss it with them, and then, okay, now what do you do about it? Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Well, Heather, we appreciate your insight and your time. Heather Nelson, again, an LCSW, can be found at InsightCounselingLehigh.com, InsightCounselingLehigh.com. Dot com uh, if you want more information and, and help on how to uh, help your children with their anxiety and depression. We will continue the journey here on the show and uh, help you get to your weekend. Uh, when we come back, we're going to continue uh, doing a little more empty news for you, plus a little update uh, from uh, our very own Jeff Simpson and his show, Screen Cleaning, Screen Cleaning, straight ahead. As we're wrapping up hour number two of the Matt Townsend Show, we got to get to some more empty news here. And who better to help us with that than Jeffrey Simpson? So, you know, a lot of people are traveling out of state to see the eclipse. Uh, Well, this one lady, you know, decides she's not going to spend very much money. She's just going to lay in the back of her truck to take a look at the stars. That's a good thing, right? What's wrong with that? Yeah. There's not a problem with that. that. Well, let's listen to the story and maybe you can tell me if there's something wrong. A 25-year-old Key Largo, Florida woman. Nothing ever happens out of Florida. Yeah. So uh, she f- she was found hiding in the bed of a pickup truck after a traffic stop. Told a deputy that she was just looking at the stars because it was a nice night out. But cor- she, she's hiding. <laughs> yeah. She's hiding. Yeah. Bobby Mollen was arrested early Monday on a charge of resisting an officer without violence. According to the report, a deputy noticed a Chevrolet pickup truck coming from under a bridge. When the deputy initiated a traffic stop, he noticed a woman lying down in the bed of the truck. He asked the woman for her name and why she was hiding, to which she identified herself as Christina Lynn Haran. Hold it. From Missouri and claimed to be looking at the stars. I thought your name was Bobby. The deputy was unable to find anyone by that name during a records check, but mm-hmm. a dispatcher advised him to check the database for Mollen, who is a known associate of the driver. After Mollen was handcuffed and placed in the back of a patrol car, she told the deputy that she gave him a fake name because she had a warrant. 
Mullen was booked into jail. Bobby. Where she was being held in lieu of a $4,000 bond. Come on, Bobby. Bobby, Bobby, Bobby. You know, what if it was in the middle of the day and she used that excuse? No, looking at the stars. No, you'd have to then say, I'm just looking at the sun. (laughs) But what is our big rule on the Matt Townsend show when it comes to the eclipse? Don't look up. Don't look at the sun. Unless you want an Indiana Jones uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark moment yeah, where your you, face melts. Unless you want to smell the sizzle and hear the sizzle of bacon burning on your eyeballs, you do not. You do not want to look at the eclipse. Duh. We've said that 20 times. And yet I have a feeling one of our listeners is going to burn their corneas. See, now all I want is bacon. By the way... I learned also if you if you are going to take a picture of the eclipse, don't look through your viewfinder of your camera at the sun. It's still going to burn your eyeballs. Just it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Go watch it on TV or YouTube after the fact. Come on. Or go get the special glasses and then make sure you get the right ones. I'm sure they're sold out. Yeah, they probably they missed the boat on that one. Speaking of missing the boat, uh, coming up in just a minute, screen cleaning will be your, which is your show, Jeff. This is this could be one of our biggest shows yet. Really, it's jam packed. Anything, anything interesting that that would just keep me captivated? Yes, that, that will keep me over the next minute. Yes. What? Give me one. Give me one. Well, what's coming? What's coming? Amazon Prime. We mentioned that there's a show that's now available that I may or may not have. A tie to a very strong tie. Really? Mm-hmm. This is exciting. Mm-hmm. Okay, you may or may not have a strong tie to it. So I could be lying. Sounds like you may. But then I could not be lying. Okay, so that's that's ahead in a bit. Anything else on the show? Yeah, we're we're gonna have Rod Gustafson, who's going to review Logan Lucky, the new Hillbilly Heist movie that's out today. Not to be confused with Logan. That's a different. Which heist is interesting movie. because we're going to be talking about. Doppelganger films, yes, films that people mix up quite a bit. You know, you you describe a film to somebody, and actually, it's a different film. Yeah, that's not what I was thinking. That's that, see, that's going to be a fun segment. I can oh yeah, tell. yeah, and and they they just get as much time with you as they can get. Yeah, that's one straight hour talking about screen screen cleaning is the name of the movie or the show, but talking about everything with your screen and how to keep it clean. <laughs> That's right. (laughs) That's a great tagline. Okay, Jeff Simpson's up next, folks. That's it for me. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back. uh, I'll be back next week. But stick with Jeff Simpson and screen cleaning. Good morning. This is Ron Brokaw at the SC News Desk with breaking news. Most criminals detained in prison would give anything to be liberated. So why then are so many criminals breaking into prison? The disturbing new trend has wardens scrambling to find more jail space. So what are the reasons for these break-ins? Well, in one instance, one man clambered over a prison fence into the jail intake area to avoid a traffic ticket. We can all relate to the headaches of being busted from traffic violations, but how is prison time preferable to a small fine? We'll bring you updates as they become available. Until then, all we can do is speculate, and we all know how fun that can be. We now take you live to Screen Cleaning with Jeff Simpson.
Whoa, that's crazy. People are breaking into prison? That makes so, no sense. I think, yeah, the, there's a lot of movies about breaking out of prison, figuring out how to get out, but right. into is a whole different animal. Wow. Would you break into prison to get out of a traffic ticket? No. Just spend the money, face what you did. Face the music. Wow. Well, welcome to the show. This is Screen Cleaning. I'm Jeff Simpson, joined here by Cole Wissinger, and we have got a packed, packed show. As I was putting it together, I couldn't believe, I I, I didn't know how we were going to fit all this content in one hour, but we're going to do it, or we're going to do our darndest, and we have some amazing news for you here today, and that's really what the goal of the show, is to give you the best in entertainment news, and to shine a big old spotlight in all that is good in entertainment. And we have two big big pieces of news that we want to share with you right now. Uh, first of which, I'm I'm going to turn this first big piece of news over to Cole to explain why we should be so excited about this. I discovered this news on Tuesday, and it took us until uh, yesterday to finally dive headfirst into it. So there's this <laughs> app and this program that's been around since 2011 called Movie Pass, where you can sign up for this monthly subscription, and you can go see a movie every single day. Like, pretty much unlimited. You show up to the theater. Too good to be true. Because they were charging people 50 bucks a month to get to see it. So, no one's going to go see five movies, right? Is what it would take to recoup your um, subscription fee. Sure. But as of Tuesday, they dropped that subscription price to $9.95 per month. What? Are you kidding me? $10. I shouldn't act surprised because I just signed up for it, too. But that's crazy. If you live in a crazy market like New York City where a general movie ticket is just $16 anyway, you show up to the movies once in a month. You've gotten back your subscription price. Exactly. Even if you live in a in a bum town where movies are still five dollars, like where I'm from, you show up twice and you get your money back. It's almost impossible not to be excited about this. If I'm correct on this, I believe uh, the co-founder of Netflix, didn't he just buy this company? Or he's got some sort of tie into this. Yeah, there's a Netflix tie. There's also a tie to to big data, as it were. Okay. Um, There's a a big company that sunk just millions and millions of dollars into this and got a bunch of, like, controlling stock interests so that they can see what kind of movies that people are going to see. Like, they want your data. Sure. But that can only sustain it for so long, right? Is it too good to be true? So this obviously makes people like Cole and me very happy. Probably you more so because I don't get away very much to the movies these days with three young kids at home. But I am still a bachelor. Yeah. Yeah. I get to go all the time. Well, we're going to have to let everybody know – how this works and whether yeah, or not it's worth it. We're putting our money or... where our mouth is on this one. We both signed up right away. So. Well, there is a free we'll trial, uh, and I believe I found. I think I found a way to see. You sent me a website where I could plug in my zip code to see if this is even available at theaters near us. Mm-hmm. And, and it I, looks to be okay. Okay. Uh, I tell you what, though. I don't think AMC, the theater chain, is very happy about this. And you wonder why, because I think that MoviePass, it seems like they're still paying full price for the tickets they're buying from AMC. AMC just thinks that it's, it's bad for the industry or it's, it's going to de-incentivize movie makers to make good movies because 
because more people are going to the theaters, I don't know Never mind where the their rationale that, yeah. is coming from. Never mind the fact that AMC is losing money like crazy. Yes. there's That doesn't have anything to do with no, it. No, no, no. No, no, no. They're, they're purely altruistic, concerned about the movie-going customer and how one day they will be blindsided. Well, we don't know. I mean, we don't know if the price will go up. If it'll go up after the first month, we don't know some of those finer details. We'll keep you updated. We'll have to let you know, and we'll, we might have to learn the hard way. Until then, Movie Pass. Yes. It's an app. It's a website. Check it out for yourself. So now for my excellent, excellent news. And I told Cole, Cole, I told you this during the break, that I wouldn't have even found out this news had I not logged onto Facebook and scrolled through a few of the posts. For the first time in months. Yeah, exactly, right? I never do that anymore. But today, or yesterday, I decided to do this, or it was a couple days ago, and I found out that there's a new series on Amazon Prime called The Insectables, which up until now has only been available in other countries. It's basically Honey, I Shrunk the Kids meets A Bug's Life. Okay, and I All teased right, on Matt's show earlier that I may or may not have had a tie to this show. Well, I actually do have a tie to this show, and I want to tell you all about that right now. Oh, uh-oh. I guess I'm going to have to put that on the shelf because we're getting breaking news from Ron Brokaw on the break-in story. It uh, appears that Hollywood is aware of this breaking into prison trend and they've already put together a trailer uh, for a movie that's called, oddly enough, Breakin. Jane McDonald was an upstanding law-abiding citizen with a 757 credit score, an affinity for opera, and no history of violence. Then one day, something changed all that forever. He had never broken a rule in his life. Now he's breaking into prison. But in order to break into the most secure prison in the world, he'll have to remember that a successful break-in depends on three things. Knowing the layout, understanding the routine, and help from outside or in. Put your hands in the air now! Showtime. Since he doesn't own a gun, He'll have to rely on his brains. You don't look that smart. And brawn. I need a diversion. Okay. <laughs> You're hit like a vegetarian. That was good. What's he up to? If you thought breaking out was hard, try breaking in. Break in. The guy who broke into prison. <laughs> That is our Silver Lining Cinema Stinger. We're going to be doing that here in just a minute. But uh, first I want to tell you about a production company. Sometimes success can come from riding the coattails of others. I'm sure we've all kind of experienced that a little bit in our lives. That certainly seems to be the case for The Asylum, an independent film company and distributor that produces low-budget direct-to-video films, most of which you'll probably see at the Redbox when you go to rent a movie. Many of the company's films capitalize on productions by major studios 
often using film titles and scripts very similar to current blockbusters in order to lure customers. And、uh, these titles have been dubbed mockbusters. So they've actually gotten into trouble over the years. They've been around for a little while. Gee, I wonder why. Yeah, I know that、uh, they came out with a Hobbit film that they got in trouble for, and they have a lot of other films that are very similar. Well, yeah, to do、others. we want to go through some of these just to see if they remind you of any particular film? Snakes on a Train, I know, is one of them. Abraham Lincoln versus Zombies. Okay. The Fast and the Fierce. I don't. I don't know what that's trying to、um, get. Imagination going、hmm. for Atlantic Rim sounds vaguely familiar、okay. to something. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so Cole and I thought it would be interesting to each watch one of these films. He watched a different one than I did, and to give a positive review of them. Because you know, some people might look at these films and say, "Oh, they're so bad that they have to go direct to video. They have to rip off other films, and there's zero budget on these things." But come on, there's got to be some good to be found in these films. Well, I am going to review the film Cargo, which、uh, you know might some somebody might look at this and think, "Oh, that's just a rip off of Cars Three. Come on, it did come out." This year, as did Cars Three, Cargo tells the story of Danny, a teenaged car who's struggling to deal with the mounting peer pressure at school, as well as pressure from his dad at home. His dad wants him to follow in his footsteps and become a mechanic, and Danny's rebelliousness leads to his father being shipped off to Clunker Island, which is a place where old, beat-up cars get sent to.、Uh, To be repurposed as junk metal, and so Danny has to rescue his father from Clunker Island. Let's talk about the voice cast in this film first. You've got Ed Asner, who did a Pixar movie. He was also, you know, on the Mary Tyler Moore Show. Everybody knows Ed Asner. Everybody loves Ed Asner. He plays the father. There's Melissa Joan Hart of Clarissa Explains It All fame, as well as Sabrina the Teenage Witch fame, as well as a handful of other ABC Family shows she's done with Joey Lawrence.、Uh, they've been a pretty good pair. It's like Judy Garland and and Mickey Rooney, as well as Haley Joel Osment, the Oscar-nominated actor of The Sixth Sense, who plays Danny, the rebellious. He kind of has a hard time. He doesn't know who he wants to be. Here's another plus: it's a musical. Now this is something I felt go wrong with a musical. Yeah, I felt this was really missing from any of the Cars films. Was come on, where's the music? I want to see these cars singing and dancing. You know,、uh, it's not enough for me to just see them acting like humans.、Uh, there are songs like.、Um, There's a there's a rap song. There's a cargo theme song. There's a song that Danny sings called "I'm Just a Teenage Car." So yeah, that would have been nice in the Cars movies. Well, we've got them here in Cargo. It's jam packed, and I mean jam packed from front bumper to back bumper with car puns. One of the characters' name. Look, listen to these names: Vincent Diesel, Greta Carbo, Sean Carnery. Don Carleone, La Carsa Nostra, Art Carbuncle, Cabigail, and Carlotta. 
I'm sure there were more, but those are just the ones that I was able to write down. Uh, another problem with the Cars franchise is the flashiness. You know, they're trying to be super fast, and it's a lot of noise, a lot of movement, which can be upsetting to a lot of kids and a little off-putting. This film has little, as little movement as possible. There are multiple chase scenes, but they're all slow speed scenes. I don't know. I, I'm not trying to say that that's them trying to save a few bucks on the animation, which is very expensive. Of course not. I think they were more worried about the kids. Plus, a lot of bang for your buck. Most people would probably look at this and think that they could have made it into a 45-minute film or a 60-minute film. No. The filmmakers blessed us with 90 minutes of They're cargo. doing it for you, Jeff. The best bang for your buck. A buck 50 at the Redbox. There you go. That's <laughs> Cargo. And the Asylum film that I chose to watch yes. is called Planet of the Sharks. Really? Now, right from the get-go, this movie has... Uh, something wonderful going for it because it doesn't just lean on the franchise of Planet of the Apes. Okay. That's kind of the image that it's trying to induce with you. But after after a couple subtle homages uh, within the first couple scenes, just like War of the Planet of the Apes did, and I saw that a couple weeks ago as well, they really decide to just clear themselves from that planet of the title and go in an entirely different direction Good to give you something them. new. That's so great. if it's what you expected, they're subverting expectations, which is something I always look for in a movie. Absolutely. Planet of the Sharks has to deal with a far distant future where the polar ice caps have melted. This is a this is really an ecological warning film yes. that after the polar ice caps melt, everything on Earth floods and society is left to just a couple pier-looking, boat-looking societies that are are separated from one another by just large swashes of water. Okay. And the the kind of societies that that are built up there are just full of uh, eclectic individuals covering all <laughs> it's a good word choice. all sorts yeah. of all sorts of people and, and places. There's one girl that does just a spot-on Cajun accent that will really th- make you feel that you're back in New Orleans. Wow. So would you – I don't want to ask you if you would recommend it, but uh, did it did it have you on the edge of your seat? Edge of my seat for the whole ride. The sharks are, are beautiful. And, and again, I'm hoping that this will fit into the other asylum creation and franchise, maybe the Sharknado cinematic universe. That, that someday the Sharknado films, the, the Sharknado will take up so much that it will actually flood the earth and lead to the world we see in Planet of the Sharks. You know, I did notice this as I was rifling through all the different titles from the Asylum, is that the Sharknado uh, franchise has done so well that the Asylum is basically parod- parod- parodying themselves with all these shark. NATO ripoffs. It's true. There are five Sharknado films now and two Planet of the Shark films with upcoming this year Empire of the Sharks that I won't be missing. Interesting. Well, you can find them at your local Redbox that you can't miss them. Just look for a familiar title that's just slightly off and you'll know it's an asylum film. Anyway, when we come back to screen cleaning, we're going to be speaking with Rod Gustafson, who's going to give us a review of the new hillbilly heist film, Logan Lucky. And then we're also going to be talking about other film doppelgangers, movies that remind you of another movie, but they're not the same movie. We'll explain more about that when we return. This is Screen Cleaning on The Matt Townsend Show. There's no difference. 
Welcome to a 90-second movie review for The Nut Job 2, Nutty by Nature, on BYU Radio. Yeah, there is a sequel to The Nut Job that came out in 2014. This time around, though, it's not a bad film. Surly, played by Will Arnett, has it made with his other animal friends in the basement of the nut shop. There is plenty to eat, and life is good until the boiler explodes and they have to go back to the park. Even that is troublesome, though, since the mayor wants to replace the regular park with a revenue-generating amusement park. Well, this may not be a bad film, but it's also not a film that will change your life. The story is simple and easy to follow, which is good for the kids. Plus, there are jokes that will make adults and kids laugh at the same time. I was surprised, since I did not have high hopes for this film from the start. There are some touching moments, and the characters go through a learning process during the film that is interesting. All in all, the film is fun and can be entertaining at times. The animal characters are relatable, but the bad guy in the film, the mayor, played by Bobby Moynihan, is really annoying. That may be what the filmmakers wanted, but this was too much for me. Since the film is rated PG, there isn't much for parents to worry about. There is a bit of violence in the film, but it's all animated, so not on a level of reality. Many pratfalls and people being attacked by animals. One character is a mouse that uses martial arts. Animals are attacking humans to get them out of the park. There's also a scene where a dog regurgitates his food on purpose and then eats it. Ew. The Nut Job 2, Nutty by Nature, is rated PG, and I'm giving it a B-. Thanks for listening. I'm Sean O'Neill, and this has been a 90-second movie review on BYU Radio. It's time to class up the joint. If you hear that music, it's time for Rod Gustafson from Parent Previews to join us. He's going to be sharing with us his review of the new, we're going to call it a hillbilly heist movie, Logan Lucky. Rod Gustafson, welcome back to Screen Cleaning. Hello, Jeff. How are you today? I'm doing so well. I'm so jealous, though, because... I really, really want to see this movie, and I think I I did ever since I saw Daniel Craig in the trailer saying, no peeking, I'm going to get naked as a hillbilly. (laughs) And Daniel Craig is somebody that usually you're seeing in these action movies or these very dramatic movies, so he's really playing against type, it seems. He absolutely is. This is a, a little more of an unusual role from what we're used to seeing Daniel Craig in because Logan Lucky is, it's actually a comedy. It's a comedic heist movie uh, directed by Steven Soderbergh. And, it, you know, Steven made a lot of the, well, he made all of the remakes of the Oceans movies in the last decade. Right. I think Oceans 11, 12, and 13. Well, this is the Oceans movie premise taken to West Virginia, if you can imagine that. <laughs> It sounds like a lot of fun, and like I said, I'm jealous. I don't think I'll be able to see it till it comes out on video because I have a little baby. But uh, tell us about it. What What is it? Is a hillbilly heist? Is that a, a good way to describe this film? That probably is a good way to describe okay. this film. Now, having having said that, I know I know that term hillbilly can sometimes be used in derogatory forms. Right. One of the things that I did appreciate about this film is that it it displays Southern culture in a way that I didn't feel was. Um, I guess, stereotyping them or being cruel or or poking fun of. It's more like they are laughing a little bit at themselves. And so that part of it was really interesting. The other thing I should say on the positive side, this is a really well-made film. Uh, Stephen is a very good director. He's the type of director I enjoy because he... He does what I don't know how else to call it, but it's no nonsense editing. The edits are just super precise and the film really moves along very nicely. And uh, he loves getting some very creative camera angles as well. Now, this is a 
PG-13 movie, so parents, there are reasons why you may want to pause before bringing your kids. Some of the usual things we talk about, there is some violence in this movie, but not nearly as much as what you would see in an action film. Uh, it's mainly fist fights and bars and that type of thing. Uh, and there is really hardly any sexual content, just a, a lot of women wearing, you know, some, some tinier skirts and dresses and, and that type of thing. Even the profanity, although we do have the usual sexual sexual expletive um, and we've got some scatological terms but it still isn't as much as we see before and lots of drinking however here's the big however for parents okay this really is a movie about glamorizing crime it makes uh, Hollywood just loves uh, glamorizing the ideal of stealing money from yep. some faceless institution right Jeff? as they and steal it, it money from matter. our pockets <laughs> yeah yeah exactly in fact one of the best parts of this movie, if you wait to the very end of the closing credits where they usually talk about no animals were harmed, there's a little message that says something about nobody was actually robbed in this in the making of this movie, <laughs> dot, 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 except for you. <laughs> so, good sense of humor there. Yeah. So, you know, that's. That's the biggest concern for parents. And in fact, um, there's some scenes. Daniel Craig's character is a is a safe cracker. He can he knows how to break into any safe. And so these guys that decide to to stage this heist, they need his help. He's in the local jail in this small in the small West Virginia community. So they go and visit him a, a few times. And one of them, in fact, even decides to commit a crime so he can get in jail with them and plan this. And jail looks like, you know, about a two-star hotel. It's, yeah. <laughs> it actually looks like quite a comfortable place. Wow. So what, what grade would you give this film, Rod? So this one's getting a C grade from us. You know, really, really? we're not recommending. Yeah, we're not recommending this for for um, for kids. For parents, however, who are unlikely to go and rob a bank, hopefully after watching this film, um, I think that they may find it entertaining. I could say I had a little bit of a, a of a pull both ways because I did find the movie entertaining and engaging as an adult. Right, but you're you're trying to. Inform parents of, of the message that it's presenting, and I understand. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's why we're called Parent Previews, not Roger Ebert. I'm right. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> now, Rod, real quick before we go to break, uh, I don't know if you heard this part of the show. I, I mentioned it to you how there's a movie pass that is going to allow uh, moviegoers to see unlimited movies for every month for just $10 a month. I don't know if it's available up in Canada, but have you heard anything about this? I have heard about this. No, not here in Canada yet. And uh, be interesting. Canada is considered part of the U.S. domestic market when it comes to movie theaters. Right. But yeah. Usually, usually um, companies who are doing things like this, the uh, trying to work through the the you know the different currencies and that type of thing. There's cost is cost prohibitive. Sure. But no, I have heard about Movie Pass. And um, interesting. This this goes back to I think about 2011. It used to cost a lot more. money. Money and they had a lot of different complicated, um, uh, different uh, levels of how much you could pay depending on where you lived and how many movies a month you wanted to see. But then, yeah, just suddenly, just a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, they've decided to release this at a flat rate of nine ninety five per month. And you can see all the films you want. You know, personally, Jeff, it's not going to last. And part of <laughs> part of what's going on here is that a lot of the MoviePass, a large stake of the MoviePass company was sold to an analytics firm. Right. And what analytics firms do is they are willing to subsidize the costs of certain things 
usually for a very limited time in order to gain marketing information as far as how people are using particular products and that type of thing. So yeah, I'll be surprised if this is, I mean, this is the movie dead season we're coming into. It was not a great summer to begin with for the box office. And if anything, I think that this could give, you know, the industry, well, I should say the exhibitors, the theater owners, a little bit of a boost as they move through the fall. I'll be surprised if it's still going at the end of the year. I noticed that, too. I thought it was very convenient that this is coming out at, at the that really dry season of, of movies. So we'll, we'll let you know, because Cole and I both bought a subscription or a membership. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we did it knowing that maybe there are some other finer prints that we weren't aware of, but that will become clear very quickly. But and there is there is a free trial, so we thought we'd give it a try just so that we could be more informed on the show. That's the only reason, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, thank you. Boy, you took one for the team. You guys yeah. are good. And, you know, what I'm interested in hearing from you guys is I suspect that there will be a lot more marketing hurdles that they will figure out how to put into the system so that you're responding to either surveys, advertisements or something. They need to get something out of it. I'm just surprised AMC is putting up a fuss about it because um, really movie theaters, all they are are big concession stands that distract you with movies. You know, and this will bring more people into their building for sure. That's a great point. Well, Rod, uh, let's come back here in just a minute and we are going to talk about that little item that we teased earlier of film doppelgangers. Films that people get confused all the time and uh, we'll see which of them are better and which ones you should focus on. When we return, this is Screen Cleaning. You ever sat down to watch a film you're really excited to see only to discover it's a completely different movie with a similar premise? It happens to the best of us. And as we uh, Cole and I shared earlier, it happens all the time at the Redbox because there's a company that uh, specifically will try to create these films that are eerily similar in title or in premise to blockbusters just to try to grab onto their successful coattails. Well, this is not a new problem, and Rod Gustafson from Parent Previews, he and I are going to mention a uh, series of films that are eerily similar in uh, premise that, you know, one film suffered because of the other film's success, and other times audiences were just plain confused, and maybe it hurt the box office of both films. So, Rod, the, the first couple of films we want to talk about with you are the films Ants, which is uh, an anim- computer animated film starring mm-hmm. Woody Allen and A Bug's Life, which I believe was either the second or third Pixar second Pixar film to come out. Yeah, yeah, and I think obviously so many people they they have A Bug's Life sitting on the DVD or the Blu-ray shelf, but I think a lot of people have forgotten about Ants, and Ants was a little bit of a bizarre film. I remember when I screened it years and years ago. This was the first animated uh, release from DreamWorks Studios, yeah. which now they've actually split into their own animation company. And the thing that struck me about this movie, Jeff, is that remember it was rated PG. And up to that point, I don't think there'd been another PG animated movie. And this one had a little bit of sexual innuendo and those types of things going on in it. And and the violence was a little more real, too, with the digital stuff going on. So this is Woody Allen animated. That's mm-hmm. interesting. See, that that hooks me right there. 
But uh, <laughs> yes, absolutely, the, I know. I remember that as soon as I heard Woody voice, Woody Allen's voice. He plays a a worker ant, and see if this sounds familiar. And he's fed up with having to live under totalitarian rule. You know, it's just a typical Woody Allen right. type of a, type yeah. of a role going on. You know, despite my best efforts, I cannot get my girls to want to sit down and watch this film with me. I've never seen it. I really want to, but I can't really justify me sitting down and watching it alone. So, <laughs> I, yeah, it, you know, for me, I remember, you know, it was I'd be curious to watch it again now that uh, now that I've seen, you know, the animation world has embraced a lot more serious topics over the years. But yeah, compared to A Bug's Life, A Bug's yeah. Life is still a lot more fun. Unfortunately, though, A Bug's Life seems to be a Pixar movie that people tend to forget or leave mm-hmm. out on their lists of best Pixar films. You Sometimes you just forget it's there. But they both came out in 1998. And uh, it, wow, yeah, similar kind of premise, though, it sounds so in 2003 and 2004, we've got Finding Nemo, which is about this clownfish who's on this search to find his uh, his lost son, and A Shark's Tale, which I did not see. But again, similar kind of characters and very close uh, as far as the timeline is concerned. What can you tell me about A Shark's Tale? Well, A Shark's Tale, and I hope I'm remembering the right movie here because it's years ago I saw it, but there were some things in here I did like. Uh, Will Smith is one of the voices. I think, again, it was rated PG, and it certainly you know, doesn't go as young. It's not appropriate for as young an audience as Finding Nemo is, but it's it's great because some of these sharks – um, are dealing with having to, it's kind of like an addictions counseling group where there, this one shark is going through, you know, not eating fish. Fish are our friends. I remember my yeah. kids used to quote this line over and over. You know, there are some funny little things in this movie that made it a worthwhile film, even though it's very much a forgotten movie. So it's the same thing as, as Finding Nemo with the shark saying, fish are our friends. Yeah, it's, wow. it, I know. See, and I, I, I remember, I'm wondering if I'm getting that line mixed up. Because, see, here I go. This is where the two movies kind of meld together in my mind. You're right. That line's from Finding Nemo. Yeah. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> uh, but I remember this film, though. It had this. So there's, a, there's this boss who's played by Martin Scorsese, and he's like a mafia guy. And then he's got a couple of other, uh, a couple of other thugs that work with him. It actually sounds quite horrible. But I do remember there being some fun things about this. And I wish I had the time to go back and watch it again. But it was one of those films. We gave it a B at the time. I'm reading. I'm reading our review here in front of me, and uh, I do remember coming out and thinking, "Hey, that was pretty cool." Yeah. Well, you're putting a big smile on Cole's face because he likes anything that Will Smith does. And uh, yeah. yeah. Well, and again, and hearing guys like Scorsese and Robert De Niro in an animated film that you can even think about showing your nine year old is quite amazing. Yes. You're making Cole's day right now. I'm just telling you, he's he's ecstatic over here. So another couple of films that came out about the same time, very similar in premise, Madagascar, which, believe it or not, I have never seen, but I have seen The Penguins of Madagascar and oh. the film <laughs> The Wild. So two films with very similar premises where they're – they're, uh, it's these animals in a zoo that are trying to escape. I've never seen Madagascar, but I've seen about 10 minutes of the wild before turning it off. 
<laughs> that was probably a wise choice. You know, <laughs> we gave both of these movies reasonably good grades. Um, I think both of them fell into like the B range. Uh, Madagascar, I, I after my kids sang that little I Like to Move It, Move It song 200 times around oh our house, goodness. I'd had it with that movie. <laughs> and The Wild was just very forgettable. Madagascar was at least memorable, even if it was memorable for all the wrong, wrong reasons. But I'm surprised The Wild, everything gets made into a sequel these days and it never did it just kind of got lost and uh, a very similar story about a lion that escapes from the zoo because he feels like thing the world will be better on the outside so yeah two movies are very easy to put together in your mind the wild did get a g rating so you know it's very yeah. suitable probably even for younger children and interesting the wild did not do nearly as well as madagascar obviously because no. they have all these other madagascar films but the wild was from disney and mm-hmm. it was kind of a flop it really was. This is when Disney was really struggling, uh, trying to uh, trying to play, for lack of a better word, with doing 3D animation and that type of thing. And uh, a lot of the stuff, there were a few movies that came out during this period. Uh, I don't know if you remember Home on the Range. I, I think that was the last 2D flat animated movie they did. And uh, yeah, they made some forgettable stuff during this period. This is when Pixar was the shining star. And now it seems like Disney is doing better than Pixar. Well, you know, part of it is the the melding of the two companies together. And, yeah, we're starting to see that that shift. And maybe it's just a balance between the two that's happening. But, yeah. Okay, so we've got a couple of other films here. This is kind of the the one that has been the biggest offender, I think. And yes. I think it's the one that has suffered the most financially because you have these two films about magicians. And, you know, aside from the Now You See Me films that we've seen in recent years, 2006 saw two films about magicians, The Prestige and The Illusionist. And this is the one that I think had people scratching their heads the most, not knowing which film they were going to see. Absolutely. And to this day... I still um, have to really try and separate the two of them in my mind and which one had the Nikola Tesla character. That was the prestige. That was the prestige, Mm -hmm. right? Yes. Okay. And uh, yeah, it really, to me, it's really difficult keeping these two apart. I remember both of them being fairly engaging. Interestingly, we gave both of them a C plus grade. So neither of them quite recommended for family viewing, mainly due to, to violence that was in the films. But uh, And then, to toss in and make the confusion even more so, there was another illusionist that released in 2010, a little French animation, right. which we did really like. And it, we gave that one a B grade. So, And that one know, was nominated for Best Animated Film at the Academy Awards, too. Yes, it was. It was nominated. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's interesting how, as the years go by, the movies just seem to meld together more. But, yeah, I think I... Personally, I preferred the prestige a little more than the illusionist. Me too. Me too. And I really enjoyed the Michael Caine character in the prestige, and uh, so and David Bowie, by the way, playing Nikola Tesla yeah. <laughs> uh, in that movie too, which interesting. And Andy Serkis in it as well. There's some yeah. great names in that one. And he didn't have the little CGI dots all over his face when he was <laughs> in his scenes either. Yes, Andy Serkis <laughs> is the real actor who he really is. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, what an amazing guy he is. You know, he owns his own stop motion company. It, it, it's just a, an amazing, or not stop motion, what do they call it? 
I can't remember, Jeff, the yeah. technical term. But he's actually motion, motion he actually capture. Is, yeah, motion capture. Yes. And he's, he's director, he's directing, speaking about films to confuse us, he's directing another adaptation of the Jungle Book, not too Mm. long after uh, the Jungle Book that Disney just put out. So very cool. Confusion abounds. Um, And to be fair to the illusionist, even though I did prefer the prestige, I actually liked the illusionist more than I thought I would. I avoided it for a while and then I finally watched it and kind of enjoyed it. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then one last one here. This isn't one that people usually associate together, but they both came out the same year. And I actually prefer the film that did not go on to spawn a bunch of sequels. Me too. So we're we're talking about Despicable Me and Megamind. They both have characters in them called, well, in in one it's Minions, in the other it's called Minion, singular. (laughs) And they're both villains that are kind of trying to reform a little bit against their, you know, against their wishes, even in some cases, but Despicable Me and Megamind. And it sounds like you and I both preferred Megamind to Despicable Me. Megamind was much, much better than I ever expected to to be. It's one of those movies I remember going to the theater and thinking I can get through this and coming out thinking, wow, who wrote that? It was really impressive. Yeah, and Will Ferrell is always entertaining. As and you know, who would have thunk that you would you would see Brad Pitt Brad in Pitt. an animated film? <laughs> so that's again great casting right there. My problem with Despicable Me is the more of these films they come out with, the less I like the original. It's kind yes. of like what happened when I read The Da Vinci Code and enjoyed it, and then I saw the film and it made me like the book less. It's weird mm-hmm. how it does that. But, uh, yeah, this last Despicable Me film, I kind of suffered through and I, I fell asleep. But I think the worst of that franchise is by far Minions, which – yes. I I refuse to sit and watch that with my kids on Netflix. I won't do yes, it. Ab- absolutely. <laughs> it was very painful. Hey, can I squeeze in my my least favorite twin movies? Sure. Remember when the Y2K thing was going on at the end of the 90s and we got Deep Impact and Armageddon within yes. weeks of each other? Yes. Probably two of the worst high-budget movies ever made <laughs> that mimic each other. Oh, bad. Yeah. But, you know, Armageddon was kind of uh, fun bad where mm-hmm. and Deep Rising or not not Deep Rising. That's another <laughs> film. Deep Impact. That came out. at a t- It must have come out at a good time because I was a lot younger and I think I enjoyed it more than Armageddon. But I'm sure if I were to go back and watch it again, I haven't seen it since it came out. I'm sure I would be right there with you. Yeah, all I know is this scene with uh, what's his name um, playing with animal crackers on Liv Tyler's stomach while the world's going down <laughs> in 25 minutes just got me. I thought, okay, that's it. I'm out. Yep. Well, Rod, we appreciate you here on Screen Cleaning, and uh, hopefully we've done a good job of confusing everyone out there by giving you these films that are so similar in either title or premise that uh, you're not going to be able to set them straight ever again. But uh, some of them are better than others, and it's worth checking them out. And uh, they're all either PG-13, PG, or G, so definitely uh, appropriate for your family to a certain degree. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with our good friends at BYU Sports Nation. And I saw both Spencer and Jerem walk by the window, so I assume it's them we're going to be speaking with here in just a minute.
head down to BYU Sports Nation to see what's coming up on their show. Spencer and Jerem, how are you guys doing? Holler! Oh, fantastic. It's Friday, man. Yes! Hey, and I have to share a piece of news with you that we teased earlier, and then I was interrupted by a news break, a breaking news story. Um, But there's a new series on Amazon Prime that I have a little bit of a tie to, and it's out now. All 52 episodes are available. It's fun and appropriate for the whole family. It's an animated series, and I voice the main character. It's called The Insectables. What? Yes. How did you get this? You got to check it out. I'm not I'm not kidding you. And it's it's one of those things where it surprised me cuz I could I could only hear the direction of the the creators of the show. I hadn't seen any of the animation and when I saw what they put out, I thought, "Oh, I should have asked for more money cuz it's 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 not I mean, I wouldn't say it's like Pixar level animation, but it is quite impressive. It so is, should we say cool. goodbye to you? An early goodbye because you've launched a new career? I wouldn't go that far. As a cartoon um, <laughs> voiceover character? This is a series that we recorded a couple of years back, and it's been sold to all sorts of other countries, but never the U.S. So this is the first time that anybody in the U.S. has had access to it. Okay, do you get, like, I mean, just bonus checks in the mail every once in a while then now? Royalties? Because of this? Roy- yeah, are royalties included? Um, No. One time Aww. you did it one time, but uh, if there's a season two, maybe I could negotiate that. And yeah. they did okay. contact me about a season two, but it's definitely oh, nice. worth a shot or worth a, a, a viewing because each episode's only eleven minutes or so. Jeff, you've been contacted oh. about season two. Yes, yes. Finally, on a show that can exploit your talents. But come on, you guys. <laughs> Season two, that's nothing. You guys have been doing your show for how many seasons now? Hey, we're about to launch season five, season five as of September 2nd, which uh, happens to be the day that BYU plays LSU. TV Mature is the rating that we got, which we thought was a little much. <laughs> Holla, back to you. That's very good. Very cool. Hey, um, super exciting. Congratulations, you guys. And uh, I, I, wonder, I wanted to kind of change gears now. There's an oh. article that I saw on Sports Illustrated that you've probably seen or that you've at least thought about this topic. But it uh, was listing the best MLB players by height. Did you hear about this? MLB players no. by height. That's yes. interesting. So Obviously, I've, Aaron Judge is the 6'7 guy. That's true. He's on there. Uh, uh, Jose Altuve is the 5'6 guy. Yes. There are a couple of different Dodgers on there. (laughs) Those are the extremes. One of the shorter ones, Justin Turner at 5'11", at 6'4", Clayton Kershaw. Are you just going to list all the Dodgers? No, I've got some others. I'll list all the the rest of the ones that are in the 6'0 or above category. 6'1". No, Corey Seager I don't think was on there. 6'1", Buster Posey. 6'2", Mike Trout, Mm, 6'3", Max Scherzer, Uh, 6'5", was Chris Bryant, and 6'6", was Chris Sale. There was was one at 6'8", but I can't remember his name offhand. This is a 6'8 guy? Oh, yeah. Probably. Yeah. Speaking of baseball and things that uh, showed up in article or on the interwebs somewhere, did you see ESPN's tweet about Cody Bellinger? No. 2007 Little League World Series star. Really? Ten years later, starring for the Dodgers. Oh, come on. Now, how great would that be if they won the World Series, the Major League Baseball World Series? I'm pretty sure I'm going to ALDS Game 2. You told me that. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to be there in October. That's awesome. I'm banking on it. I'm saving my nickels. So do you think it's going to be the Rockies or the Diamondbacks that they'll be playing? I think whoever wins that wild card. 
one game plan will be that team. Wait, did you say ALDS or NLDS? The NLDS. Oh, yeah, you did say ALDS. I'll um, be at the NLDS. I, I would much <laughs> prefer that they face off against the Diamondbacks than the Rockies. Okay. You heard it here first. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was just trying to figure out, hey, have fun at the uh, ALDS in watching, Los Angeles oh, yeah. when watching, it's not there. Watching the Mariners <laughs> play the Angels. See? <laughs> no, that could happen. No. That could happen. So uh, I'm curious. Actually, to, it can't. Right. I'm, I'm curious to know what's coming up on your show in just uh, five minutes and 18 seconds. I know that we always say we have a loaded show, but for real. This is the beginning of the end. This really? Friday show before game week number one for BYU football yes. is jammed. This is, okay, m- Monday is Portland State week. We're in season mode. This is the last day of the off season, if you will. The, the preseason wraps up. It's game week next Monday. So season predictions today. What's BYU's record going to be? Tanner Mangum stats, leading receiver, mm. rush, uh, you know, rushing, tackles, sacks. We're going to predict. What we think, who we think, today. Yep. We also have the radio sideline reporter for the LSU Tigers. We're going to ask him about the average LSU fan's impression of the current state of BYU football, also about key injuries, and is Darius Geis, their star running back, better than the man he replaced last year, Leonard Fournette, who was a top 10 NFL draft pick. Whoa. Whoa. Right, can you tell me the answer? Well, no, he's going to tell oh, us the no, answer. It's, oh, okay. It's, well, it's called a tease. Okay. He's going to tell us the answer. We we want you to tune He's in. the expert, right? <laughs> we want you to be like, oh, I wish I knew the answer to that. I'm going to have to listen to this yes, program. Yes, and Hollywood's incidental prediction for the BYU-LSU game. So, so, like, remember Back to the Future 2 was like, oh, the Cubs beat the... Yes, and it almost happened. Miami. Miami, Miami. whatever. Yeah. They were There's one a movie year off. that has BYU-LSU... Uh, score on the screen in a certain part of the game. We're, we're going to tell you about it coming up. And B- BYU is leading. We'll tell you. But you're not going to tell me now because that's, that's But we won't tell you now. Tease. If you text me, I'll, I'll text you back, though. Okay. Well, sounds like a packed show, just like our current show has been. Yeah, we've, baby. We've gone over a lot of stuff. Good luck on the show, and uh, have a great weekend. See Thank you, Jeff. you, Jeffrey. So we just have a little bit of time left. We want to give you our panning for good segment of the day. There's good in them dire hills. (laughs) I feel like I've already hit you over the head with this quite a lot during the show, but it's super exciting news, and I wanted to share with you a clip from The Insectables. It's just a little over a minute long, and see if you can recognize this voice. Like I said, it's a mix between A Bug's Life and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. My character, Zach, goes to stay with his grandpa for the summer, and he starts noticing these interesting-looking bugs, and he even gets gets into a little bit of trouble. Gramps, I'm here! Huh? I'm gonna go right ahead and pretend I never saw that. So what? <laughs> That's right, nothing at all. Gramps, it's me, and I didn't just see something really strange. Cool. Whoa, analog! Some old record player thing, like MP3s for cavemen. (laughs) I wonder if it still works. No!
Wow. So what happens there is my character, Zach, gets shrunk because he accidentally plays with the grandpa's shrinkinator invention and his grandpa trying to save him also gets shrunk. So now they're the size of bugs trying to gather all of the parts of the shrinkinator so that they can get back to their normal size. It's a really cool show. Definitely worth checking out on Amazon Prime. Even if you have to purchase it, if you don't have Amazon Prime, I think it's only $15 for 52 episodes. Come on, talk about value. Anyway, enough of the shameless promotion. I'm just super excited, as well as you will be if you go check it out. Anyway, that's going to do it for the show. This is Screen Cleaning. We'll be back next week to give you the best in entertainment.